Welcome, y'all. I'm Deeg. I'm here today chatting with Cameron Rich. And I hear myself on my phone. Let me fix that. All right. First, <laughs> first glitch out of the way. Cameron, you are a senior game designer at ArenaNet. And I've known you for designing some of the coolest encounters in that game that I've gotten to play. How are you? Thank you. Uh, tell me how you're doing. Doing all right. I'm getting by. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a crazy, crazy year. Um, but I'm doing really well today. I'm looking forward to this. How That's are you? You know what? It's been a crazy year, but I'm doing okay. Actually, today's been a bit of a weird day. But the general theme yeah. of things is going pretty good. I've been having a great time talking to all kinds of people lately. And, you know, uh, I'm always scanning around the community to, like, See, oh, that person would be fun to talk to. That person would be fun to talk to. And people jump out at me for all kinds of different reasons. So I've had the pleasure of seeing you on Guild Chat a handful of times. And you've given some pretty thoughtful responses. That's like, oh, cool. That's interesting. I'd like to hear more of that. But then I saw <laughs> you make a comment about uh, ADHD on Twitter. And I was like, oh, a fellow sufferer. I have to talk to this guy. And we're going to get to that. But first... Um, so I know that before you were a designer at ArenaNet, you did QA. And before that, mm -hmm. you had other jobs in game dev. Can you talk to me about how you came to game dev? What inspired you to get into the industry? Was it luck or was it, was it, a, lot of, was it a big push? What was that like for you? Sure. Uh, it's a long story. I love right. telling it. Um, buckled up. But, uh, you, you know, there's, there's highs, there's lows, uh, there's surprises along the way. So it's fun. I'm ready for this. Um, so, let's see. Uh, I uh, am uh, originally from Florida. Um, and uh, I, as I was growing up, uh, absolutely loved video games. Uh, they gave me um, a way to escape into other worlds whenever things weren't going so great in life. What stands um, out to you in your childhood? What games? Uh, oh, man. Name a couple. Uh, Kingdom Hearts is absolutely like my favorite franchise uh, yeah. of all time. Uh, I've got it tattooed, nice. the heartless symbol on my sleeve. Um, I, you know, was uh, really into action RPGs, uh, played a lot of um, Devil May Cry. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was really into just JRPGs in general. So um, played a lot of Final Fantasy. Sure. Uh, I mean, I... I Pretty much any game uh, from the Nintendo 64 era through GameCube, uh, mm -hmm. PlayStation 2, like the, that's what I grew up on. Mm -hmm. um, and when the when the 360 era um, and the the PS3 came out, uh, that's whenever I was you know getting into high school, uh -huh. and uh, and I really started to see the potential that games had uh, for telling really interesting stories. Um, and, you know, the, the franchise that I look at uh, as kind of like one of the first that really, uh, other than Kingdom Hearts, that really mm -hmm. like spoke to me um, was the Mass Effect franchise. Ah, um, and yes. uh, for a number of reasons, um, telling a story and an epic long term story over the course of multiple games yeah. uh, and allowing the player to be the agent that has a lot of choice uh, in how the story progresses and is able to really impact the narrative and see uh, mm -hmm. real change and how the world evolves over time. Um, that just like, I was like, man, that's awesome. That's, that's what I want movies to be. That's what mm -hmm. I want life to be. Uh, uh, that's and, the good stuff. and it was, uh, it, it was definitely one of the, the first franchises that really kind of like cued me in to this is maybe what I want to do. Mm -hmm. 
moving forward though, uh, like uh, once I was out of the high school years, um, Florida's got a handful of studios uh, and um, one of the you know more prominent ones is like Tiburon, uh, which makes Madden. Um, oh, and uh, I don't really want to make sports games. Uh, so at the time there wasn't a whole lot of options other than some maybe pop-up indie studios at the time. Um, and I didn't really have an education background uh, in game design. Uh, and so I just kind of picked up uh, and left Florida um, at 19. Um, I spent a year in Ohio. Uh, it's fine, uh, not for me. Uh, and then after the year in Ohio, I moved out west because uh, I essentially just said, I'm not going to be able to get into the games industry unless I'm in a place where the game industry exists. Yeah. Uh, and so drove the 48 hours, got out to, uh, to Washington State, uh, moved into an apartment in Seattle. Uh, I transferred jobs. I was working retail. I was at Target. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it was around the time that the PS4 um, came out. Okay. Uh, so at the end of 2013, I believe. Gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, and after the PS4 came out, um, I was working the electronics desk uh, at Target. Mm. And uh, before I go any further, I will say um, MMOs have always been a huge part of my life. Um, they, uh, we can talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Um, but one of the franchises that like really stuck with me as a kid, um, in middle school and high school and further was Guild Wars. Uh, and part of the reason why I moved out to Seattle, uh, was because arena net is stationed here, uh, here in Bellevue. And, uh, I had it in my head, uh, as an aspirational 19, 20 year old, um, that one day I'm going to work for arena net. I'm going to do that. Uh, and that's why I decided Seattle was the place I was going to move. Damn, and not I like love San the hustle. Or... You really took yeah, the ball by yeah. the horns. You were like, I want this. I'm going <laughs> to go get it. Holy shit. That's, uh, that's, that's what I do. Uh, if I, if I want to do something, then why wait around, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Good so, question. yeah, so I, I was in, uh, I was in Target and man, what was it? I think Michael Bryan came into uh, into the Target, uh, and I saw him walking down uh-huh. uh, the aisle towards the electronics counter, um, and I freaked out because I knew who he was. Because uh, again, <laughs> I really wanted to work for Internet. I I knew Michael Bryan, I knew Colin Johansson, um, all the people that showed up in the manifesto trailer for Guild Wars Two. I, I, they were right. like my idols. They were my right. Yeah. And all of a sudden, one of your uh, heroes just walks to the store. It's Mo. Right. Right. It's like seeing Iron Man, right? Um, <laughs> and so... <laughs> For Mo would appreciate that comparison. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he'd like it. Uh, but yeah, so he he came up to the electronics counter and he turned and he went straight into the games aisle. Um, and I looked over at my coworker who was, who was at the counter with me. Uh-huh. And I was just like, you got to hold down the fucking fort. I can't explain. I need to go. I need to introduce myself to somebody. Uh-huh. Just like, I know you're going to hate me for this, but I'll explain it later. Just do your thing. It's fine. Um, and like I said, the PS4 had just come out. So uh, the electronics area was kind of, you know, busy. Uh, <laughs> everybody's there trying to snag a console or, uh-huh, or get uh-huh. an accessory or, or get a game. Uh-huh. You're bumping um, shoulders. Yep. Going yeah, the yeah, yeah. So I, I like take my name tag off, right? Yeah. Because uh, I'm like, I don't, want any, I don't want anybody to interrupt me on this. Uh, and I walked over to him. Uh, and uh, I just kind of like timidly was like, hello, uh, are you Mike O'Brien? Uh, and he was just like, yes. 
Uh, and we chatted and I told him how much I enjoyed uh, Guild Wars and how much I looked up to him as a game developer. Um, he was there to get a PlayStation controller uh, mm-hmm. because his kids were playing, uh, I want to say it was Trine 2, um, the platforming game that you can play co-op. Yeah, it's with the, game. the classes, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so he needed a, an extra controller so that both of his kids could play. Uh, and we were out of controllers. And so my first interaction with my idol was, oh my God, hi, uh, I'm so excited to meet you. Can I help you? No, I can't. (laughs) Damn. Boy, that's a bummer. (laughs) But, uh, but we, we chatted a little bit more. Um, Uh he was really surprised to have been recognized. Uh, he was flattered that I, that I knew who he was. Um, and he invited me to come to the studio to, uh, to have a tour of it. And, That's you know, incredible. Be a fan. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, this was within a month of me moving. So it was very serendipitous. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and I don't know how much of a believer in destiny I am, um, but I w- it was one of those moments where I was looking around and I was like, where are the cameras? This is the Truman Show. Yeah. What's yeah. happening? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so uh, from there, uh I went to the studio. Um, I came in. Uh, I've got this wonderful picture um, of myself uh, and Mo and a couple of the other studio heads. Uh-huh. They had just come out of a meeting. Um, this was around the time that like the Fractured release was coming out sure. uh, towards the, the latter end of, of season one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't know what they were talking about. I, they, they wouldn't tell me because I wasn't under NDA. Uh, but... Uh, I got to meet all of them, uh, and I got to meet Mo. But um, before that happened, my first experience walking into the studio, uh, I should back up a little bit, is uh, I walked up, uh, rode the elevator up, walked up to the counter, um, and uh, spoke to Eva Phillips uh, at the front desk. And, (laughs) you know, just walked up and casually went, hi, I'm here to see Mike (laughs) O'Brien. And she just gives me this look like, uh huh. Um, what's your name? And told her my name. She's like, "All right, give me a second. I'm gonna make sure your story checks out." Uh huh. Uh, and then you know, like five minutes later, that's whenever they all came out, and I was just like, "Oh, guys, well." Uh, we talked. Uh, got the picture. They needed to go because they had more important things to do than to you know sit there and talk to a really bubbly, overzealous fan. Uh. <laughs> But uh, the um, the recruiting manager, uh, the hiring manager, Thomas Abrams, um, he uh, gave me a tour of the studio mm-hmm. um, and showed me everything uh, in the office and, and just kind of like ran me down uh, or, or ran down all of the things that um, that they do at the studio mm-hmm. uh, and kind of talked to me a little bit about the different departments. Um, I knew I wanted to be in design, uh, but I actually also knew that uh, it was going to be really hard to do that without an education. So uh, I, my first foot in the door was ideally going to be QA. So at the end of the, the studio tour, um, which was a blast, uh, I just told him, I was like, how do I work for you? Okay. That's what I want to do. Straightforward. I want to do it. Right in. Yeah, exactly. Again, All right. why waste time, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter if you're going to sound like a lunatic. Uh, Can't have you, don't ask. But yeah. <laughs> so I... Uh, I, I told him, and he was like, send me an email, give me a resume, um, and, uh, and we'll be in touch. Uh, and I did, uh, and it took about 
four months of constant contact um, of me sending him an email and asking, you know, what the status of things were, if a position mm-hmm. had opened up, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Um, and there were times where uh, I thought that I was just pestering the living shit out of him mm-hmm. uh, and that I was just annoying him and he was going to block me and I was going to lose my chance. And uh, But he kept telling me, he's like, persistence, man, it's fine. Keep sending me emails, yeah. even if I don't respond. Get to the top uh, of the stack. Very yep. encouraging. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, after four months, um, the studio... Uh, had a QA position open up. Um, we had just begun like a new QA process and we were hiring a bunch of people for that uh, and uh, went in for an interview and got the job and that's where I started. Okay. Uh, yeah. So QA, w- talk, to, talk to me about what it QA is. Oh man, uh, it's so much more than people think. Uh-huh. Um, everybody everybody knows, uh, I think at this point, the the meme video um, of the commercial from like the what late nineties or early aughts of, uh, of like tighten up the graphics on level three and just like two, two guys just sitting there and like playing video games and you know, like this is QA, you can do this. Like, uh-huh. no, it's, play video games for a living. That. Right. Exactly. Unfortunately, it is not so glamorous, um, as just being able to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, the, the way that I liken it, uh, is, um, you kind of have to be able to uh, to deconstruct the game experience that you're testing, mm-hmm. right? Because um, because okay. finding bugs. Um, sorry, my volume just got really loud. Okay. Uh, okay, there we go. Um, finding finding bugs in the game is is half of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, providing feedback to to make the game better um, is another part of it. Um, and building up a relationship with uh, with your development team right. um, and, and really being a part of the development team um, is super important. And it's there's so many like little minute things that I could go into, like writing test passes, um, doing regressions, doing ad hoc testing, which is where mm-hmm. you you don't really have an agenda. Um, you usually are just uh, it's towards the end of development on a, on a piece of mm-hmm. uh, content mm-hmm. and you're like, just go in and play it and do whatever you think is going to break it and see what happens. It's kind of explore. Um, that's how players act. Yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. Okay. Um, and so, so it's a little bit like playing Indiana Jones uh, where you're just going through and you're like trying to find all of the little secrets, uh, but the secrets uh, are actually just ways to break the game. Waiting for the pit of snakes um, to, to ambush you. Yeah. Uh, but one of the most important parts uh, is, is to be able to, uh, really accurately uh, and concisely give information as to how to reproduce a bug. Because uh-huh. um, it's not yeah. enough to just be like, I was playing the game and this happened and it broke. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That is that is somewhat helpful, right? Yeah. Um, but what's more helpful is like, I was doing this thing, uh, I used this skill uh, right after this thing had happened, the creature did this and the game crashed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and being able to like piece out Step by step, what happened in like the yeah. last fifteen to thirty seconds of yeah. gameplay? A high amount of really relevant helps. detail, right? Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes not everything is relevant, but you don't know that, and so it's mm. better to over communicate. Um, mm-hmm. There have mm-hmm. been times where uh, you know I I had found bugs, or I've I've had other QA testers find bugs that um, we were able to reproduce them by going through this obscene, ridiculous uh, amount of steps uh-huh. in order to get it done. And so it seemed like this really complicated issue, um, but actually it was 
just a flag on a creature <laughs> or a flag on an event uh-huh. uh, that someone had forgotten to mark. Um, and so little industry secret, uh, now it's out uh, to, to everybody. Um, most bugs are just tiny human errors uh-huh. of someone forgot to flag this thing. Someone put a one where they should have put a point one. Yeah. Little tiny mistakes like that end up leading to some of the more hilarious bugs. Um, and the ones that are the hardest to find uh, are, are the ones that um, they, it's, it's not easy to understand what's happening immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and like even going through the code, you're like, this just works. Why isn't it working? Mm-hmm. It works in this environment. Why isn't it working here? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the vast majority of issues are very, very simple uh, to fix. Sure. But it doesn't seem like it when you're playing the game because there's so many systems that are going on. Yeah, you had um, said a few moments ago about being able to deconstruct what's happening. So by having an understanding of the relevant systems that are in play, like, okay, well, we're having dialogues. So, so the, 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 the dialogue system is firing off. We're having this happening. There's some kind of an animation or some kind of a, a shader effect or something. And you understand, okay, these systems are involved. I'm going to give detail about what's what, what's going on with these systems when this bug occurs. Like that's the kind of thought process it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, and being able to have uh, you know tools on hand to provide evidence of um, you know like having logs of the chat log, uh, and we have some you know like test commands that give us a bunch mm-hmm. of info for like script debugging and stuff. Um, being able to provide screenshots and videos and gifs. Uh-huh. Everybody loves gifs. Yes. Um, yes. It, it, like. If you have a choice between a screenshot and a GIF, go GIF all the time. It's uh-huh, so much uh-huh. better. It's a game. It moves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there, there's so much to it. Um, and uh, one of the more one of the more unfortunate parts of it is uh, it's not thought of as like a uh, it's not often thought of uh, as a valid career path, right? Mm. Um, like a lot of people. Uh, treat QA as a, a stepping stone um, yes. or as, as a way to get their foot in the door mm-hmm. um, so that they can get to the, the real parts of development with design, with being an artist or being an okay. audio engineer or a programmer. Um, but QA is, is skilled labor uh, and it takes a lot of time uh, and effort to build up uh, the skill sets and the mindsets that you need to be mm-hmm. um, an excellent QA tester or analyst, uh, lead, uh, and it is a valid career path. And I would encourage anybody who wants to get into games, um, one, yeah, QA is probably going to be the easiest place for you to start. Um, mm-hmm. But it can be really, really enjoyable work. Um, and there is a valid career path there for people who want it. So consider it. How did you develop this, those skills you were just talking about? Um, a lot of time and practice. Uh, I, I played... Uh, video games, like I said, throughout my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I really, wanting to get into design, um, the the thing that I knew since I wasn't going to be able to go to like a school like DigiPen um, mm-hmm. or Full Sail, because I just didn't have the funds, um, was that uh, I needed to, to try and, and emulate the learning process. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad was a teacher. Uh, so he instilled into me, uh, he was a science teacher, he instilled into me the scientific method um, okay. you know, okay. of, of going through something, uh, forming a hypothesis, testing it, testing seeing it. what the results yeah. are, mm-hmm. and then, you know, going back and forth, uh, in that loop. Okay. And I kind of just, uh, started to apply that, uh, to any game I was playing. All right. right. Um, like what? Give us an example. And, uh, so, okay, let's see. Um, 
So I am primarily an encounter designer, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things uh, that I that I love to do as a kid um, that I still love to do is raid in an MMO. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I'll use World of Warcraft as an example. Perfect. Um, there was uh, a boss, let's see. Uh, there was a boss in Ulduar, uh, which mm -hmm. was the second raid to release in the Wrath of the Lich King expansion mm -hmm. for World of Warcraft. Right. Um, and uh, this boss was, um, God, what was his name? XT something something. How can I forget his name? He had a really, really high pitched modulated voice and he was a gigantic robot. And was his he the voice one at the were... end of the massive courtyard, that boss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. after you had gone through the gauntlet with all the vehicles, you right. came to this junkyard heap, right? And you had this huge little robot dude, huge little, um, you had this huge <laughs> robot dude. And he, his, his voice lines were things like, new toys for me? Oh, yeah! <laughs> and it was just like fighting a robotic death bot uh, who had the voice of Pinocchio. Uh -huh. um, and it's, it, I digress. I could talk about how amazing that boss is all day. All right, but, so you love uh, that boss. So, so applying this scientific method, learning QA skills. Right. Uh, going through uh, and, and figuring out like the strategy for defeating the boss requires mm -hmm. a lot of of figuring out how things work. Yeah. Um, and so we had to, you know, we had to communicate and coordinate as a group to get people to go over and deal with the ads as they were coming in. Um, we were figuring out that like some ads were more important than others to defeat because they would do more damage yeah, uh, or they that. had like an area denial effect around them. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, trying to balance uh, the timing of getting everybody uh, or getting all of the ads cleaned up mm -hmm. uh, for whenever you uh, unlock the ability to damage the core, uh, which was the main uh, way to do damage to the boss, because mm -hmm. otherwise he had a ridiculous health pool. Um, like all of that timing and coordination and, and the communication challenges involved, um, that is absolutely the kind of thing, the kind of skills that you need in order to be a good tester as well. Mm -hmm. Um, because okay. like a lot of times you're not just testing on your own and especially in an MMO, um, you're going to be, uh, you know, around a lot of other people, um, with a game like Guild Wars 2, uh, with all of our events being open world and mm -hmm. we're encouraging people to group up together, um, just, you know, dynamically throughout the game. Uh, we have a group of testers go in and it's really important to be able to be like, all right, let's test it from this way. You guys go do this thing. You guys go do this thing and kind of form a strategy of how to attack it. Um, and, and tackle it. Uh, and, and yeah, so that's, that's one example. Um, another example, let's see, I, man, bugs that I have found in other games that I'm just like, Hmm, what is going on here? Uh, man, now I'm on the spot and my brain is just like, nah, we're not going to yeah. think of anything. So one of the famous <laughs> examples from World of Warcraft I can think of where there's, I think there's actually still ongoing questions about how it actually works is the deep breath in Anixia. Do you know what I'm talking oh, about? I did, I did not think that that's what you were going to say. Um, uh -huh. But uh, I actually don't remember the deep breath of Anixia because I didn't play Classic WoW. Okay. Um, what's the bug? So um, I don't think it's n known to be a bug for sure, but what is known is that the, you know, like in, in WoW, um, there are great boss add-ons. They'll telegraph mm -hmm. upcoming mechanics and give you loud sirens mm -hmm. and, you know, really obnoxious. People have done. Um, but the behavior of the deep breath has traditionally, and people can correct me if I have this wrong, but I think this is, this is, this is correct. 
that the deep breath is very hard to predict, even for add-ons, because it's not really known exactly how it works. And in fact, I think I've read uh, a developer anecdote somewhere that they even went back into the code and there's still not a clear understanding of exactly how and why Anixia will do a deep breath attack. So what is a deep breath? Uh, the reason you care about the deep breath is because it uh, Anixia, during the second phase of the fight, she takes flight. She's a dragon. And uh, you have to deal with her whelps who are spawning on either side of the arena. Keep them under control because they'll, they'll kill your healers and stuff and you don't want that. And while this is happening, Anixia's flying around and pivoting around the arena and doing these, this massive AOE, like, insta-kill, deep breath, where if you have a bunch of fire protection, you can kind of tank it and survive it. But mm -hmm. uh, it, it's not good. Um, but uh, There's how, no clear reason why it happens. That's the thing. Like, with most of these kinds of fights, you can be like, oh, yeah, okay, this happens here because of this. And people have done the process that you're talking about where they deconstruct mm -hmm. it. And try to understand exactly what happens. And I, I remember reading this, like maybe it was about a year ago, that the deep breath was still a bit of a mystery in terms of how exactly it works. So, and now I really want to re-up my subscription and just like go into that fight and see if I can figure out what's going on. Yeah, man, you get in uh, there. Because usually, you know, like creatures in video games, they, they run off of uh, either a couple of different things, right? They, mm -hmm. they run off of um, scripted behavior. Um, which is basically um, exactly like it, it sounds. It's a script that a designer uh, or a programmer puts together that tells uh, everything what to do, when to do it, exactly how to do it, why right, to do it. Right. Um, and when this trigger is fired, this thing happens. When this skill is used, this thing happens. Everything follows a very, very particular pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, or creatures will use something like intelligence uh, where there's a bunch of different decisions that they can make right. uh, at any given time and using a bunch of outside stimuli uh, from the, the game uh, mm -hmm. and from the systems involved, um, they will be informed to make a good decision. Right. Um, and then that will dictate what they do. Uh, and so Anixia being an older boss, um, I'm not exactly sure uh, if they went for more of a, uh, of an intelligence-driven thing, mm -hmm. if they went for a script-driven thing, um, or even if they did like a hybrid of the two. Um, there's sometimes where like, uh, especially for older games before intelligence got like really, really big, yeah. um, we would, you know, we would do things where we would create uh, creatures that had just like a skill bar, just like the player does, except, you know, it's hidden from the player. Yeah, they use right. the same system. Right. Like and they would just pull, that, right? exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and they would just pull from that group of skills uh, and whenever a skill was off cooldown, they would use that skill, mm -hmm. right? And that's very, very basic creature implementation. Um, but it sounds like uh, that this this breath uh, that she's got, um, if if she was using a, a system that was basically just built on cooldowns, mm -hmm. um, maybe the cooldowns line up in such a way that there's always something else to use other than the breath, except in right. very, very you know, one-off moments. Yeah. And so the breath just never gets used. Like a priority um, created bugs like that before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, it, sometimes you got to sit down and do the math and make sure, uh, and like having uh, an aid of like visual timers to make sure that like, yeah. you know, things line up in the way that you want them to is really important uh, and super useful. Um, if she uses an intelligence system, maybe it's something where like uh, the reason for the breath to happen is if, uh, 
enough players are, are under a certain effect or if they're in a mm-hmm. particular part of the zone, um, if there's enough people in front of her, if there's enough people behind her. That's how a lot of the um, the tail swipes for the dragons in, in World of Warcraft works, right. um, is it'll detect if people are behind it and the tail uh, or the dragon will be like, nope. Yeah, get out of here. And slap you around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe it's a script error uh, and uh, maybe the breath is supposed to happen more frequently uh, and more in a pattern. Um, but somewhere along the line, there's like a logic break uh, and where it should happen, it instead goes and does another thing. Uh-huh. There's a lot of different possibilities. Um, and it's it's something that would be a lot of fun to play around with. Okay. You just laid out a yeah. whole bunch of really cool, like, it sounds like almost like best practice about how to, how to break down a problem. Did you like learn all this as you were as you were doing the QA job? Uh, how, how much of it? This is just overlap with the scientific method. It sounds like you have a real not just like you learned a lot on the job, which you you do with most jobs, right? Especially in technology and software, um, but that you came in with a certain mentality that you, you, that kind of inclined you to this. It sounds like you had like a little bit of a uh, uh, what's a good word for it, like a, like a little bit of an edge. In the in the right direction, maybe yeah. You mentioned um, that, that that your father was a, a teacher and the scientific method. Yeah, I, I wonder if I could uh, ask you to expand on that a little bit. Sure. So you know, like the the core of the scientific method um, is that uh, there's a logical reason for everything. Right. Um, even the things that seem illogical, there is a reason for it. We just have to discover it, right? And mm-hmm. the way that we discover it is by testing hypotheses of what if the logic is this. Um, and seeing if it works out, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so you can kind of apply that to anything um, if you have a question about anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of my one of my favorite little examples, uh, I don't have one with me, um, is uh, water bottles. Um, they have a little divot on the bottom. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, if you just see a water bottle in a vacuum um, and that's, that's all you have with you, you might ask yourself like, why is there this little divot uh, that, mm-hmm. is, that is right there? Um, sorry, some, I apparently did not get rid of notifications. Quit. There we go. There's always more to squash. Believe me. I get it. I get it. (laughs) I don't stream often enough, apparently. Um, but anyway, uh, so, so, you know, you have the water bottle, you see the divot, you might ask yourself like, why is the divot there? Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, if, if you think about it from, you know, different perspectives, uh, you know, from a consumer perspective, uh, maybe it's so that, um, it balances a little bit better because if it's got just a completely flat surface, it might wobble a little bit. That's what I was thinking. Perfections. Yeah. Um, but from a, a factory um, and from a packaging perspective, it allows them to be stacked on top of each other. And so oh. if you have two uh, that are, if you've got two little water bottles, um, you might be able to test it out by just putting one on top of the other and maybe it fits. Um, mm-hmm. Some water bottle companies specifically do that so that it's easier to, uh, to stack them up and saves on storage space. Sure. Um, it's like an operating and, at and, scale type thing. Yeah, exactly. And so it's it's all about just um, just curiosity and asking questions. How do things work? Um, how, does, how does it break down? Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite little shows to watch as a kid was How Things Work uh, or okay. How It's Made, rather. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, that goes through the process of like, you know, take, I don't know, popcorn, uh, you know, how are bags of popcorn made? And it goes through uh-huh. every single bit of the process and they do a really good job of not just telling you, and then we do this and then we do this, but they're like, we do this so that X, Y, and Z happens. Yeah. And then we move forward. And now that X, Y, and Z has happened, we do this mm-hmm. because we know that X, Y, and Z happened. And there's quality assurance to make sure that if something gets through the cracks, 
you can throw it out. Okay. Um, great show if you want to just like sit and veg out and those like, are like intoxicating. You, you just lose hours watching stuff like that. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm so glad. I'm so glad that YouTube exists because I don't have cable, uh, and YouTube has a huge repository of a bunch of how it's made videos. Yeah. Uh, and so there are times where like. I, I will literally just spend an afternoon with that in the background. It's yeah. great. It's relaxing. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. Okay. So uh, applying the scientific method to QA, doing QA mm -hmm. at ArenaNet. So uh, what were some of the first uh, stuff that I might know about that you got to work on doing QA? Let's see. So uh, I started uh, QA in the spring of 2014. Uh -huh. We had just shipped the season one finale. Right. Um, and we were uh, working on the new player experience, which was bundled <laughs> up with our China launch. Right. Uh, and so that's that's where I started. We were about um, probably three quarters of the way through development on that whenever I started. So I didn't get a whole lot of opportunity to help test that. Um, yeah, sure. I mostly was in, in training at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, my first you know, big uh, testing projects were the rebuilding of Lion's Arch oh. um, and uh, the uh, whole of season two, Living World season two, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the which includes uh, the, the Zephyrite, the first time that we uh, had people go to Labyrinthine Cliffs. Mm -hmm. which I can't remember the name of the release. Um, I don't know. It's not Festival of the Four Winds, because that's what it is now. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the modern incarnation. Yeah, but, uh, but the first time that we ever did that, sure, uh, that was sure. one of my first projects as well. Cool. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's where I started. Uh, and then, uh, I don't know, do you have any questions about those? Well, I, I just love if you have any interesting anecdotes from, from doing that stuff. Like, so the Lion's Arch rebuild was a, was a, a, a really big moment in the Guild Wars timeline, I feel like. Mm -hmm. um, the, the shape of the city is, a, is very different compared to what it was before, like this rickety, you know, thing of pirate ships kind of stapled together with, with rickety wooden bridges. And then uh, we have, uh, you know, the kind of modern, like... Uh, uh, nice white concrete lines arch with the beautiful sculptures and things like that. Anything from that that work that stuck out at you? What about like um, uh, growing up moments during QA? Anything that uh, like uh, early lessons that you that you took something away from? So yeah, um, let's see. Uh, well, something that just comes to mind uh, sure. really quick before I before I jump into that because um, you just had Josh Farman. Uh, on the yes, show. Yes. Um, and I'm curious uh, if Josh talked at all about the LA rework, because if I remember correctly, um, he was the map artist that was behind that. I didn't get, I didn't remember to ask him about that. You know, I don't think we talked about that at all. That's a shame. Well, um, Josh, I am sorry if I'm going to share some false information here. Oh, what I that. remember hearing in QA, um, and if it's false, you can fight me. I'm done. <laughs> um, I'd like to see that. Is, is that the reason why we blew up Lion's Arch and rebuilt it, um, other than the narrative reasons, right. uh, was that um, the original Lion's Arch um, was built out of tons of different props and mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. incredibly perf heavy. Um, hmm. And so while it was, uh, and, and also the layout uh, of the actual city um, condensed a lot of things. And so there were a lot of players around the same spaces, right. which also hit perf. Um, 
God, I hope I'm right on this because I remember all of these details being mm-hmm. shared to me. Sometimes they're just myths. Sometimes mm-hmm. there are, there are uh, boogeymen that uh, go around uh, QA and the studio at large about reasons why things uh, are, uh-huh. are being why made the way, the way they are. Why is this the way it is? Water cooler it's, conversation. It's, yeah, exactly. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of mythology. It, um, it makes sense to me, though. Like th- That's my recollection of the original LA. It was very packed tight in terms of assets and in terms of the density of uh like critical town services yeah yeah exactly it was all it was all focused around that like town square with the mystic forge and all the crafters like kind of over in one corner um and you have like the the guild uh uh traders and stuff in one god it's been forever since i've actually like looked at what it what the layout was yeah um, but for some reason it's like sticking in my mind um but yeah it was it was incredibly perfect and so part of the the initiative with the new lands arch was um less props uh, uh-huh. and uh, more spread out uh, density so that um, there wouldn't be as many players in one place, mm-hmm. um, which uh, philosophically, I'm not really sure uh, if it ended working out because the, mm. the fact of the matter is, is when people idle in a city, they're going to idle near the bank or the trading post. Um, and sometimes one near spot. the, yeah. yeah, sometimes near the crafting. So we, we did, you know, we did achieve uh, the, the effect of like, if you're doing one of those things, you're in a separate place rather mm. than all being kind of congregated. Um, but, uh, but I just, I have some, some love for the, the old lion's arch. I do like the new lion's arch, <laughs> but I don't know. I, I personally uh, would like to see uh, us, you know, have an option uh, for yeah. the old lion's arch maybe one day. I think um, you're right now you just, a lot of people have said. I've heard that from a lot of fans. Yeah, I know you can go back into the the personal story and experience it with a sepia tone filter, right? Which you can, I believe, you can turn off by going into your settings yes. and going into post processing and turning it to none. Uh, so a little secret if you don't know. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a special place, um, and so yeah, uh, but yeah, that's just a little side note since we were talking about LA. Uh-huh. Um, I got a little sidetracked. My ADD is kicking in. Mm. What was the second part of that question? I was curious if um. So I I'm just looking to like build the narrative here of of Cameron Rich. You know, like uh, I think it's a really cool story that you decided you wanted to work in video games. You decided you wanted to work at Arena. You decided you want to work in design, and you plotted your course. Um, and I I'm just like I'm I'm trying to see in my head like the uh the narrative path of going from uh qa to design and learn and how how um uh one of the things i know that you worked on was um at least if i'm remembering right if my notes are correct was the first raid yes is that correct um yeah okay so that jogs my memory that's uh, we were talking about uh like experiences with with qa and then season Uh two and then moving forward from there um yeah, so uh, so after season two released, um, you know, uh, uh, we had um, I was working at a um, at the time we had a lot of our testing um, through a third party, uh, <laughs> and so I was working for that third party, and there was a very close relationship there. And oftentimes, developers would come over and they'd give presentations on stuff that they were doing. Okay, um, and when we when we started Heart of Thorns, um, we were uh, I was part of that you know, that third party QA. Um, and I remember Colin Johansson uh, coming over uh, to the the uh, office that we were at, giving a presentation on the expansion. 
um, and saying, and we're going to do raids, uh, which uh -huh. means that we're going to need to figure out how we're going to test raids. So think about that. And I was like, I'm a raider. That's my <laughs> yeah. career. I want to do that. Um, I can just I imagine do you, you, that, you like, doing this number. Me, me, me. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, That's and, exciting. Uh, and, Holy shit. <laughs> no, I, I, I did not pull the same thing that I did with Michael Bryan, um, <laughs> though I did, I did, you know, like go up to Colin Johansson and squee a little bit because he's, he's a bit of my hero. Uh -huh. um, and, uh, and I talked to him a little bit about it. But, um, but I was fortunate enough uh, that when the position opened up uh, for a, uh, a QA embed, um, which... Uh, when we had our third party as our primary QA, um, mm -hmm. there were uh, QA leads, QA testers, QA managers over at the third party. And then we also had QA in-house. Um, and a QA embed is someone who is in-house, who um, is employed by ArenaNet and uh, specifically owns a piece of content in the game from a uh -huh. QA perspective or okay. multiple pieces of content. Okay. And so um, a position opened up for QA embed uh, a couple of different positions. One of them was the raids team really wanted to have a, a dedicated QA tester and a dedicated mm -hmm. QA embed. Mm -hmm. um, so I threw my name in the hat, um, mm -hmm. went through the interview process and uh, got the job, jumped cool. over. Cool. Uh, and so I, I jumped in um, probably, I would say, maybe a quarter of the way into development. Uh -huh. There was some work that was done prototyping-wise. Um, Crystal Reed... Uh, was the the team lead at the time? We had uh -huh, Crystal, uh -huh. Jason Reynolds, um, we had Trevor Bennett. Uh, Do we have anybody else? No, I think that was just us three at the start. Okay. Um, and then I think Paul Ella was our producer. Um, okay. So we were a small little ragtag team, um, and we were we were going to make raids. Uh, uh -huh. What and, was that like? Uh, like? Man, it was fun. We were trailblazing. Yeah. Uh, we because because the thing with raiding is. Uh, you know, when you look at a game like World of Warcraft or Final Fantasy, uh -huh. um, you know, the, the games that have like what are considered to be like the best raids in the industry um, or uh, maybe De well, Destiny wasn't actually like all that popular yet. But um, anyway, World of Warcraft and Final Fantasy, they have a trinity, right? Mm -hmm. So they have tanks, mm -hmm. healers, DPS, um, mm -hmm. and a, a lot of what allows the, uh, the raid designers of those games to make really balanced uh and really fun encounters um, for their system is they can create roles uh, out of those tanks, healers, and DPS, yeah. um, role responsibilities that those players need to perform in order to meet success. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you can design an encounter and be like, all right, so I want the tank uh, to always be facing the boss away from the group because it's going to cleave. Um, mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I want the healer to uh, be managing their mana because maybe there's a mechanic where the boss life steals. Oh man, I'm thinking about one of one of my favorite bosses. Uh, the boss life steals health from everybody, but it's a percentage of everybody's maximum health. So when this is happening, you got to actually try to keep them as low as possible. Yeah, uh, and that's like a on. lot of pressure on the healer, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And then DPS, you can do things like okay, so they're going to be ads that pop up. That's super uh -huh, common. Uh -huh. um, or you can you can say you know like okay, the boss is charging up this really big attack, and you have to pile on damage. And if you get the damage on yeah. enough, and you do enough damage, you'll break him out of the attack before he's able to kill your tank. Mm -hmm, um, and yeah. so there's. There, there's a lot of, you know, like just easy, uh, not necessarily easy, but traditional role yeah. responsibilities. Kind of like, like, um, like, like convenient handholds. You'd be like, oh, let's apply this pressure. Let's apply this pressure. Let's, because with, with, with the defined roles, it's like 
we can act on certain parts of the raid group that we can expect to be being fleshed out by a person, right? Exactly. Whereas um, with Guild and, Wars, and, sorry, go ahead. I was going to give you a segue. Also, sure, sure. Uh, and, and almost there. Okay. The uh, the the classes in uh, in World of Warcraft or Final uh-huh. Fantasy are built around those roles. Yes. Right. So uh, you play a paladin. You play a protection paladin. You're a tank. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you play a uh, a warlock, you're a DPS. Mm-hmm. Um, if you play a holy priest or a discipline priest, priest, you are a uh, a healer. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so those are the primary uh, reasons for playing those specs outside of like class fantasy and aesthetic. Yeah. With Guild Wars, we don't have that same trinity. Uh-huh. We do have a trinity, but it's a soft trinity. Um, and we talked about it a little bit whenever we were first, you know, uh, doing our big marketing uh, for the game back before launch. Um, but we were going for something that was more damage control and support. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and and our philosophy behind uh, class design was that um, because you had uh, weapons with different skills, mm-hmm. and because you had a deck of utility and healing and elite skills that you could choose from, um, you could create a character that filled each of those roles and you weren't just yeah. stuck in being a tank, a healer or a DPS. Like a natural um, hybrid you, system sorts. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You could specialize in being more of a control unit by being like guardian has hammer, which is a bit more a control weapon. Uh-huh. Um, and you can, you can use things uh, like knockdowns uh, and stuff to, to get a little bit more of that. Um, or you can play an elementalist mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, you know, focusing more on, um, like the support skills in water and air mm-hmm. um, and earth uh, and providing boons to your allies and there's a support role. Or you can go like a straight thief um, and you can just choose a bunch of utility skills that boost your damage. You can put on some signets that just give you increased critical chance yeah. and you can focus on just dealing that high damage and burst. Mm-hmm. Um, and so creating raids for a game that doesn't have that regular trinity, uh, it requires you to rethink uh, what kind of roles you're going to give players. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, uh, we tinkered around a lot with a different, with a, with a lot of different possibilities. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so our, our first raid, um, was Forsaken Thicket. Okay. Um, and, uh, it, uh, the first boss was Veil Guardian, right? Veil Guardian. Um, first, uh, can I just interrupt and, here and tell you that sure. when I was playing the Heart of Thorns beta, because because mm-hmm. I, I I was a raider too like I actually ran like a forty man raid guild and old like old school World of Warcraft man like I was hell yeah I but I was a, a reformed gamer too I was playing the game with my wife and I was like we gotta try the raid we gotta try the raid raids are amazing you don't know it but it's amazing and uh, we got into into Veil Guardian and first off uh, incredibly fun encounter and I'll let you describe how it got to be what say that it was and secondly I was so happy that we didn't figure out how to kill it on that day, you know? Like, I was so happy that it put up a good fight against us and made yeah. us stretch our minds and our, our abilities. And Anyway, tell the story, but I just want to give it tribute because that was a really well, cool moment for me. Really quick, did you end up killing it that weekend? The beta weekend? Yeah. No. We when you did fun- kill it, when you did kill it, how satisfying was it to find? Oh, it's out? incredible. It was incredible. You know, it's like yeah. the, the, the gamer yelling into the microphone, you know, the thing you, you, yeah. you, you see on, on YouTube. You know, it was that moment, like the, the one that you play for. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's all of your hard work that you've done over time culminates in this experience where you see that health bar go zero 
the boss falls over, you got the yeah. lead, you're like, yeah! Yes! Oh my God. And best of all, you get to share it with people. Exactly. You can share it with your friends. It's an experience that uh, online gaming has provided us that is just like, it's not available anywhere else, right? Yeah. Except for like sports, right? You know, mm-hmm. it's very, very similar to sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so anyway, uh, so Veil Guardian, um, when we were first, we were first uh, trying to figure out how to make raids in Guild Wars 2 and, um, mm-hmm. and how to make them challenging and what roles that we could give, um, we first leaned uh, really heavily on uh, on using controlling conditions um, and uh, enemy placement uh, and manipulation um, okay, stuns okay. Uh, and and uh, trying to make control uh, like wow. a real a real role that you need to specialize in um, okay. and having enemy units that required you to to lock them down or else they were really dangerous right like the orbs um, right. Yes. Sorry, uh, I, I should let you tell it. Go on. I'm just excited. So, the, so <laughs> early on, early on in Veil Guardian, we had this mechanic uh, where during the trash, um, you had these orbs that would spawn from the sides of the arena, and they would start very slowly coming towards the center of the arena, mm-hmm. and your goal was to stop them from getting there and kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that you would do that is uh, they were susceptible to things like chill, CC, or, or sorry, Chill, um, cripple uh, some CCs, uh, and so you wanted to have dedicated members of your group um, who were controlling them. But the trick was is that you didn't want to just apply cripple to them all the time uh, uh-huh. because you needed them to sometimes get towards the center of the arena so that they would form uh, a different unit by uh, combining with something else and uh-huh. then use that opportunity to do a specific thing. I forget. This is like seven years ago. Okay. Uh, okay. Or six years ago at this point. So there, so there was uh, timing and, and technique built into it. It wasn't just spam all right. the CC all the time. Exactly. You had okay. to be very careful about what you were doing. Uh, right. And just throwing out a bunch of cripple was going to cause a lot of problems. Uh-huh. And, uh, and we had, uh, we had a druid uh, that um, we nicknamed the crippler uh, because they, uh, they took that role very seriously and uh, they applied cripple to everything, uh-huh. uh, and I still I still don't know if they if like part of it was them trolling or part of it was them just like um, using their regular skills, and it just so happened that their skills at the time were balanced around having a lot of cripple. Uh-huh. Um, but but <laughs> we we were like we're struggling we're struggling really really hard to figure out you know like why is this so difficult why are these guys. Uh-huh. Like always being crippled, and then we pinpointed this thing. We're like, "You're doing it! What? <laughs> you are now the crippler forever." <laughs> uh, and and but but that's that's an example of like uh, of an experience that you kind of want to avoid um, whenever you're creating a raid boss in general. Um, if it's mm. not clear what is going on uh, that is going wrong, um, then it's not easy for a group to pinpoint what to change in order yes. to create a path to success. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, and so we went through a lot of iterations of trying out some new things uh, and, and creating uh, support roles uh, by being like, OK, maybe you have to have, you know, these specific boons whenever the boss does this attack. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of it was uh, a lot of it was trailblazing. A lot of it was, you know, figuring out new ways to um, to tell those kinds of stories and to create those kinds of encounters. Cause we couldn't just take the same design as a world of Warcraft encounter and pop it into our game yeah. or a final fantasy encounter and pop it into our game. 
because um, not only do we have those roles and specializations, um, we have a very, very unique um, and I think the most fun MMO uh, combat system um, in that uh, you can dodge. Uh, there's a lot of mobility. There's yeah. very few cast times on abilities. When they yeah. do have cast times, they're very powerful. Um, it's fast. It's frenetic. Um, and we wanted to lean into that. Uh, and that ended up over a bunch of iteration cycles. Uh, you know, we, we leaned into, okay, so let's have some Condi DPS as a, as a play role. Because mm-hmm. um, we have some classes that focus more on conditions like Necromancer. And if I remember uh, right, it was only a few months before that that there was this. Because where, sorry, I'm, I'm tying a few things together. So Hardthorns came up with the break bar system, which we didn't mm-hmm. have before that. So that gave a new life for control effects on big enemies, mm-hmm. which uh, so that changed that. And also, I think that there was a point in Guild Wars history where there was a condition cap. And it made yes. c- condition uh, Condi DPS so uh, like basically useless on any kind of a boss, and that I think changed in the lead up to Heart of Thorns and enabled something like this to happen. Yeah, absolutely. We made changes to the gameplay systems to try and encourage players to to interface with those more nuanced systems yeah. um, and reward them for skillful play. Mm-hmm. Um, with the with the break bar, um, we previously had the Defiance system where we had stacks of the Defiance buff that you would slowly see. Uh, you know, go down. Um, and that was just a very binary system of you've got to use this many skills in order to stun mm-hmm. the boss. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it wasn't super satisfying when you did it. Because mm-hmm. like, you know, there were some bosses that had like 99 stacks of defiance. Right. And you would get them down. You'd like, you're like, all right, he's about to hit zero. Hit that last one. And he's stunned for two seconds. Yeah. Oh, man, <laughs> that's great. Love yeah. it. One attack. Feels awesome. super rewarding, uh, <laughs> but we've we've gotten a lot better about that. Uh, and this, you know, the break bar system that we created um, is a lot more visually appealing. Uh, yeah. We we you know created the ability to lock it and unlock it at specific times, so we can mm-hmm. um, so we can create moments where it's like, okay, hold your CC abilities, wait for this to unlock, mm-hmm. use them to kind of do a CC burst window. Right. right. Get right. this down as fi- as quack- bleh, quackly, quickly as possible. Uh, and then, you know, be rewarded for it by getting a stun and getting the exposed debuff. So now you've got a burst window of damage that comes yeah. up uh, afterwards. Um, and that was just an incredible design change. Um, mm-hmm. And I can't mm-hmm. I can't remember the exact designer um, who implemented that system and came up with it. Um, but uh, if you're watching and um, you just know that I appreciate you. It's a great it's, it's system. A good change. Yeah. It is a, a, a lovely pace change. Um, yeah. Going from the Berserker and, meta, where everyone just stacks in a corner and DPS is down with power DPS, to having Condi damaged, having break bars, added a lot more interesting combat verbs. Um, I love that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's, you know, we we used those, uh, we used all of those in the Veil Guardian encounter that you yeah. have now. Um, yeah. And that you've got uh, a role for Condi damage um, <laughs> with the Red Guardian. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, a place for power DPS to go. Um, and then uh, you've got a, a role for players who need to have some break bars um, mm-hmm. with the multiple attacks in that fight that open up the break bar, like the sprinkler attack that goes on and stuff like that. Sprinkler um, attack. I've never heard it called that. I like that. That's that's the internal name that we <laughs> gave for it because uh, he reaches up in the sky and it's like, it's like a little sprinkler. I'm going to imagine the sound that sprinklers make whenever I see it now. That would be a fun ability if we could do like do 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 do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, now I've got now I've got fun little you know math problems to figure out on how we might build that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, 
so, so we created a lot of these new roles um, and we, uh, we utilized them throughout the encounter. Um, but one of the things that we focused on a lot, which I think sets our game apart, mm-hmm. um, and I can actually see a lot of other games taking uh, inspiration from, uh, is we focused on uh, trying to, to dive more into that fast, frenetic, mobility-based combat system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, we have uh, a lot of instances, um, especially in that first raid, of uh, needing to run around and do things and be very quick about it. Mm, yeah. um, so, you know, on Veil Guardian, you've got the green circles that you've got to have someone go and run into and absorb. Yeah, tank, um, mm-hmm. And uh, and you've got the, you know, the, the shifting zone that rotates. Space. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, like, the, the, they're not brand new uh, to, to mm-hmm. GW2. Um, there are a lot of World of Warcraft fights that require mobility. Memoron and Ulduar um, mm. is one, uh, especially the firefighter achievement. You've got a lot of play space that gets taken up by fire and you got to move them around Mm -hmm. and and make sure you're in safe zones. Um, But there's something different whenever you add the ability to dodge, when you give players uh, boons like swiftness um, and super speed um, and and kind of give them uh, tools that they would normally find in action RPGs um, and not necessarily MMOs. Um, And and I think that's kind of what GW2 is, right? Is it's a conflux of both the action RPG and the MMO space. Um, And it, it's a really unique combat system that offers a lot of cool opportunities yeah. for fun moments. Like sadly, it's flame wall. <laughs> flame wall. Yes. You know what? Uh, I had this thought the other day, like I almost tweeted about it because it just struck me so hard that one of my favorite things when I get to do it in a boss fight in guild wars right now is when I get the chance to jump over some kind of a wave effect. I don't know why I find that so satisfying, but I absolutely Isn't do. It? Yeah. Isn't it satisfying. It, it's, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but there is um, there's a mechanic in the Sunqua Peak Fractal that you worked on where you get this this high jump to dissipate this cloud. I, it's so satisfying to just use the jump, which is such like a... Usually you use it just to keep yourself from getting bored in MMOs, I feel like. like and mm-hmm. suddenly it's a gameplay mechanic. I don't think it's cool. Yeah, and it's, it's also it's a social mechanism, right? Everybody knows uh. that whenever you see people jumping up and down... <laughs> Ready to go. Like that's that's the sign of friendship. That's the sign <laughs> that you are in a safe place with people of like minds. Um, right. Yeah, man. Uh, we we will get to that. Uh, Sunglaw yes. Peak is is very dear to me. Um, yes. Yeah. But raids. So, uh, yeah. Raids. Uh, so yeah. So I, I was part of I was part of the 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 raid team as a the QA embed for uh, raid wings one two three and then a little bit of four. Okay. Um, and. Uh, while I was doing that, I was also um, the QA embed for the uh, the Fractals of the Mist uh, revamp. Mm. Excuse me, that we put in for Heart of Thorns, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so the the change that was from a big 50 change. skills to one hundred. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I worked alongside uh, Mike Z um, and Lester Bloom uh, and a couple other really talented folks, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and then you know there were a couple of other like smaller projects that I took on while I was doing that, like a two-factor authentication um, and little things that are not nearly as interesting. Sure. Um, At least not interesting from a gameplay standpoint. Um, I'm sure that people uh, find it really interesting in how... Two-factor authentication? Talk to me about that. That's what (laughs) I want to know about. That's what I'm here for. Oh, man. Uh, But yeah, so so I essentially, I kind of just... um, I was QA embed for a lot of the in-game PVE content uh, mm. in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that I wanted to do 
um, because I I said, you know, I really wanted to be a designer, um, is I wanted to learn how to build content. um, And fractals uh, are by far my favorite content mode in GW2 for in-game PvE. Um, I love raids. um, I love strikes. Uh, and uh, but I, I have a very very um, soft space in my heart for fractals, uh, and I wanted to create a fractal uh, that uh, retold the experience of going through the nightmare tower, um, mm. and uh, and to reuse a lot of those assets that we had um, from season one that weren't getting use anymore, uh, mm-hmm. and put them into the game in a repeatable way. That way we could get a lot of bang for our buck mm-hmm. um, because an artist spent you know ton of time on that model yeah. the animator did a lot of work on getting those animations to feel just right yeah um you know we had we had narrative lines that were recorded for it yeah uh, we had environment uh, assets that were built for it yeah um, it, just, it, it, it seemed like you know uh, a missed opportunity to to not follow up on it and and you know build yeah. a, a nightmare fractal like a good pitch because um, normally there's so much that goes into this like if there's anything that really stood out to me so uh, thanks to everyone who's involved in putting on guild chats because guild chats are a huge part of how how i learned what everyone worked on but uh one of the things that really pokes out at me about those those that amazing show is um how much it takes to make the game that i'm sitting in front of the vfx the art the sound everything it's a lot um, i especially love the little breakdowns that that y'all show on guild chat from time to time so uh, shout out to whoever makes that happen and like the gifts like you talked about those are always lovely to see um, yeah there's there's a lot of talented people that make that happen uh it's it's great um mark and ruby are fantastic to work with yeah um and and there's a lot of other folks on that team that just they they put in a lot of hard work to make sure that we're uh we're able to communicate uh with the community on a, a pretty regular basis and, and uh-huh. have fun things to talk about um so shout out. I love you guys. Yes. I love working with you. Mark Ruby and the rest. Um, Keep it up. And I'm, I'm, I'm really, really glad uh, to hear that you enjoy it. Um, and uh, here's to more to come. Excellent. Um, let's see. So yeah, so uh, Nightmare Fractal. So when you're working on the Nightmare Fractal, were you doing it as a QA embed still? Or were you a designer yes. at that point? Okay. Uh, so so yes, both. Uh, uh-huh. What's that so story? I... I started the idea for the Nightmare Fractal as a um, side project that I never expected to ship uh, mm-hmm. back whenever I was QA for raids um, because uh, I was now in the studio. Um, I had a machine that had access to our development tools. I wanted mm-hmm, to learn mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to dive into them and I wanted to you know, like just get my hands into the system. Um, and I'm a storyteller at heart. I've always wanted to create games, and this was my opportunity to do so. Okay. And so uh, I I worked uh, with a couple of different designers um, across uh, the course of about I want to say a year or so um, to uh, to see if I could get like a, a partner in crime uh, to like teach me uh, yeah. maybe on their off hours or like take a lunch to just like walk me through you know Be the process of setting up okay. a creature. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, and it, it you know I, it ended up taking a couple of different forms, um, but uh, towards the end of uh, Raid Wing three, mm-hmm. and uh, while we were working on Raid Wing four, um, the the Fractals team uh, consisted of myself, Sean Hughes, uh, Elijah Miller, 
um, and Benjamin Arnold, um, mm-hmm. who is uh, a fucking wizard huh. um, and one of the, one of the best developers I think I've ever worked with ever. Okay. Um, and uh, and Ben and I were were really really good friends, uh, and so I, I went to him and. I uh, pitched him this idea of like, hey, I want to build this fractal, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I've got this you know paper design on it, and uh, I I there, the the system for building content in GW two is daunting. It's it's a lot of mm. proprietary stuff um, yeah, as a yeah. lot of games use, and uh, it's um, you know it's a lot to learn, especially when you got a full time job. Um, <laughs> And so uh, he he mentored me and guided me through the process of learning best practices. Uh, and uh, around the time that Raid Weeding Four was about a fourth of the way through development, or maybe halfway, um, the uh, the Fractals team uh, we had a meeting and we were talking about like what our future Fractals were going to be, mm-hmm. um, and we were talking about Ark uh, and his storyline. And we had the Chaos Fractal that was coming out around that time. Uh-huh. Um, and we were talking about, you know, like, what are the fractals that are coming out to tell the story of Ark? And uh, and in what order can we, you know, release them? And That um, right there is, some... an, is an interesting fork in the road for fractals. To be like, let's tell yeah. a story of multiple fractals. That's That really made me pay attention. It, it was unique. Um, and uh, and I think it, um, it offered a lot of really... Uh, it offered a lot of opportunities to do something that is really only possible in the gaming medium, right? Okay. Um, the whole idea of the fractals is that you know they're constant, right? Um, but they're but they're stuck in a loop. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah. so you you make progress. Um, you might tell a character's story, but then everything gets reset, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Dessa is particularly tragic because she's looking for someone, um, and or she's looking for something, and she you know. She never gets there, right? We have that one moment uh, back whenever Thaumanova Fractal was released, where we had the story version of it, and Dessa, you know, like uh, exits the fractals of the Mist Portal from inside Mist Lock Observatory, and then she pops right back in, uh, and it's just it, it was really sad. And we wanted to we wanted to explore that a little bit more, yeah. um, and kind of dive a little bit more into her story. And then also we had this idea for like, what if we had a villain? Um, or an antagonist, I shouldn't say villain, but an antagonist that uh, that had the same potential as the player character to traverse mm-hmm. fractals as a whole, mm-hmm. right? Because um, that would be super fun. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, so we came up with the idea of Ark, um, and uh, we started telling his story. And I had been working on the Nightmare Fractal, and we had this meeting, and... Um, we uh, pitched, hey, what if we took the Nightmare Fractal and uh, put it into full production and made it part of the storyline, uh, right? Um, and it was kind of a dream come true for me. I was like, uh, yes, please. So uh, at, at so, that point, how much had you actually done for the Nightmare Fractal? Was it still something on paper? Did you have like something working in game? Like, I had a very rough prototype. In. Okay, okay. Um, I was not versed in how to create uh, creatures and skills and combat encounters. I was still learning a lot of that. Uh-huh. Um, I was barely versed in how to just set up content in the game, like spawn deaths and stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, so it it was in a really early stage. But mm-hmm. um, I attribute a lot of the the reason why we did it to to Ben backing me up because. Um, mm-hmm. I would go to Ben with these uh, these paper designs, um, and I would riff off of um, just you know the design of the encounters from a high level perspective, pie in the sky, um, and we'd get you know into a room and we'd put it on a whiteboard and we talk about mechanics, 
Um, the vomit mechanic was something that came out of that where we were like, oh man, wouldn't it be really cool if there was a mechanic where it was a damaging uh, AOE, but it was you know coming from the player and not from uh, the creature, right? Uh-huh. Um, and instead of it being a circle, what if it's a cone that goes out in front of the player so they like project onto, what if they vomit onto somebody? Yeah. Uh, and, and we had so many conversations like that. It was, it was a lovely, lovely time. Uh, um, wow, that sounds really and, fun. Uh, it, it was, it absolutely was. Um, ideation is, is absolutely my, probably my favorite part of mm-hmm. development, uh, mm-hmm. right behind uh, the actual release and getting to see people uh, yeah, react to the it. The payoff. But uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but the, the, the Nightmare Fractal, um, we started working on uh, in full production. I was still in QA for a little bit longer. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, around, I want to say a month or two, uh, maybe a month before the release of the Nightmare Fractal, um, one of our design directors uh, at the time, uh, or lead designer, I think she was a design director, um, okay. Kristen Cox, uh, okay. pulled me into a room and uh, sat me down. And I remember being terrified uh, <laughs> because she like gave me this look, like oh. piercing it to my soul. Holy shit. And then she put down the paper and she was just like, so we want to offer you a job. And I was just like... <sighs> Wow! Because <laughs> I because I had gone through the process of like uh, of doing the the interview for a design position that had opened up, and they ended up going uh, with someone else that was at the okay. studio as well. Um, and they they made sure to say you know like keep going. You know we didn't not choose you because you're not talented. We we chose the other person because they are the best fit. Um, right, right. So you know you know keep going. Um, keep that persistence. Right. Uh, and so this was a dream come true. And I. I remember that day vividly. Uh, I like uh, I stood in that room for a little bit, uh, Uh and then i i grabbed I grabbed the sheets of paper, uh, and I kind of went running through the halls. I was like, "Ah!" Uh, and (laughs) I saw I saw Mike O'Brien in one of our like one on one rooms off in the side, and he was talking to our narrative director at the time. Uh, and the door was open, so I didn't think anything of it because um, I'm socially awkward, and I should have just been like, "Oh, they're having a serious conversation." Uh, uh, now uh, I walked in, and I'm just like, "I, I I'm a designer. I'm a designer." <laughs> I just ran out. Not even. I'm not shitting you. That's what I did. Um, I was like, "This is the best day of my life," uh, and uh, it was great. It was great. Um, and of course, Mike O is on this scene. How how poetic? How poetic? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, so I, I worked with Ben to, to finish that out. Um, and, uh, I, I worked with, um, gosh, who, who did I work with that ended up taking my role as, as QA on the race team? I want to say Peter Larkin did. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so, uh, you know, I transitioned out of QA over the course of a little bit of time. Um, cause you can't just like drop all your responsibilities at once. Um, that wouldn't be nice. Right, exactly. Uh, not whenever you're dropping uh, the responsibilities that you have for the team that you're, you know, going to be working with. Um, yeah, probably not smart. So, yeah, yeah. So we finished uh, Nightmare Fractal, we released it, and then I was a designer. Bro, and... that is hype. That's a great. That's a great little story right there. Yeah, I mean, it isn't really such like a little story. So. No, it is. It's 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 beautiful, man. Because um, I I love. That that you know when you when you first approach, they're like, yeah, no, but keep trying, keep trying, and then it actually happened for you. You made it happen. Um, I you know I, I've talked to uh, a couple folks on the narrative side, I talked to Bobby and I talked to Tom, um, both awesome people. Um, 
And one of the things that, especially with Bobby, that I really read is like uh, a real desire in helping people, helping people move in whatever direction they're passionate to move in, you know? And sometimes a no is not a no. It's a not, not right now. And like your, your story, like, I think about all the gamers who are going to hear this, whose dream would be to work on a video game. You know, people who are in this, who are in the same spot now that you were in, um, when uh, when you decided to move out to Seattle. Like, it's a really inspiring I'm, story, and it's something I'm really glad people are getting to hear. I, I uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna give some some tough tough love. Uh, Hit me with it. But but hopefully some inspiring advice. All right. Advice. Um, all right. I'm ready. If you want to be in the games industry, you need to put yourself in a position to where you can actually be in the games industry. Um, you need to be physically in a space. Uh, maybe not so much now because you know, like quarantine it's getting um, weird, and, right? and the pandemic is, and we're we're winding down. But working from home is is a lot more popular. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, the the best way that I have found in my experience um, is to be in the places where the opportunities are. Um, because it's so much easier, uh, at least in my experience, to, to get those opportunities whenever mm-hmm. you live in physical proximity of them. Um, and like I said, it's changed with the pandemic, but still, I, I would stand by that. Um, and it's going to take um, a healthy amount of luck. Uh, mm. I ran into Mike O'Brien by chance, right? right. Um, I, I, I didn't like stalk him or, or, or plan to like find him somewhere. Um, but I put myself in a position where like I wanted to work for ArenaNet. So I'm going to, you know, be in the area that ArenaNet's in. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that was, that's persistence. But um, I could have never met him. And mm-hmm. I have no idea where I would be at today. I had like a five year plan of like, okay, I'm going to save money. I'm going to maybe go to DigiPen. Um, and then I'm going to work for some indie studios. Maybe I'll work for like, a couple other companies in the in the um, area, and then around this time, I'll apply for ArenaNet, right. and that whole plan just got fucking thrown out yeah. when uh, serendipitously I just came across someone. So don't expect for things to immediately fall into place. Mm-hmm. Um, know that there is going to be some luck, but um, luck is uh, a lot more easy to experience when you put yourself in the situations where it can happen. You stack right? the deck. Um, exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, uh, keep going. Be persistent. Uh, have that curiosity and, and foster it and, uh, and use online programs like Skillshare, um, you know, watch uh, watch YouTube videos uh, and documentaries and stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, highly recommend uh, that you go uh, and and look up uh, Design Doc if you don't already know. Um, or mm-hmm. uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to shill a bunch of other YouTube channels, but That's there's a lot fine. of resources out there. Share the love, man. Um, yeah, uh, new uh, extra credits, uh, New Frame Plus. All there's a ton of other stuff. I could name them off forever, but. Sure. Um, you sure. can do it. You can do it. That is the most important thing is don't let yourself get in your head saying this is never going to happen because <laughs> then you can create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, right. It's so much more important to, to just like fight back against that. And I know it's not easy um, and I know it takes a lot of time. Um, mm-hmm. And here I am, you know, a person who got really, really lucky and, you know, did it in six months uh, to get into uh, the position that, you know, opened up all the possibilities for me. Mm-hmm. Um 
So I, I don't mean to like, yeah, it's, you can do it. Yeah. I promise. Yeah. It's good to you remember. It. It's good to remember that, that the thing that you, that you want is, is not, should not be a simple thing. Should not be an easy thing. And if, if everyone who liked playing video games, it was easy, it was easy for, for all those people to get jobs in the games industry. Like, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. Like, who cares? But no, like, what you did, um, just reflecting on it, um, was, not, was not something that a lot of people um, are prepared to do. The, moving across the country for the, for, the, for, the, for, the pro, for the future prospect of a potential job. But it's a very smart thing to do. And so, like, what, what really stands out to me about it is when you say stack the deck in your favor, like, yeah, like, that's something that, like, it, it's a good aphorism, right? But there are some specifics that I really like. Mm -hmm. that, like, so physical proximity, that's big. Even in, even in the area, even in the era of, you know, post-COVID, work from home, stuff like that. I don't know. I used to work in an office. I kind of miss it, to be honest. I think that it's a lot Always. harder to get noticed. <laughs> it's a lot harder to, 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 to make connections when you're trying to do it all like this, you know? Yeah. It's a lot harder. Um, yeah, absolutely. The, the, the human element um, is, is diluted a little bit whenever you can only interface with people um, across a screen and across yeah. headphones and mic. You really right? got to work for uh, it to get the same amount of value as if you and I were just sitting in a room across from the table from each other. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and there, there's a lot of things that you that uh, you end up not not easily being able to be cued in on, right? Yeah. Um, like body body language and, and subtle things that people do um, mm -hmm. to kind of like give you a feeling of their emotions. Um, and just, this is gonna sound a little weird, but auras, right? Like some people have an aura whenever they're anxious um, or, uh. or they have like a nervous tick um, and that can cue you in on like ways to, to um, reapproach a conversation or, or how to, yeah. um, how to yeah. interface with an individual. That's a little bit harder uh, whenever, whenever you can't be in physical proximity to them, it's not yeah. impossible. Um, and I think MMOs, uh, and online gaming proves that you can make meaningful connections with people across thousands of miles. Um, so it's, it's not like it's, it's not possible. It's just a little bit more difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's to the possible and the difficult. That's a good one. Indeed. Well, I think this is a good moment for us to take a short break. You cool with that? Sure. Yeah, right. absolutely. How long do you need? Uh, let's take five. Okay. Top off your coffee, stretch your legs. We'll be right back, folks. And we're back. I'm Dee, chatting here with Cameron Rich, now senior game designer at ArenaNet. We've been talking all about his path from being a gamer to a QA uh, embed to now getting a job as a game designer at ArenaNet because of his incredible work on the Nightmare Fractal. So that is amazing. What happened next? Oh, man. Uh, so let's see. Um, after Nightmare Fractal released, uh, we were in the midst of um, season three uh, mm -hmm. after Heart of Thorns. And uh, we knew that we wanted to tell um, the next part of Ark's story. Mm -hmm. And we didn't quite know uh, exactly where we wanted to go for our story. Um, and so there were a lot of ideas that uh, came about. Uh, and one that we actually mentioned before um, was uh, a, a mountain map um, that had a bunch of elementals 
Um, and that might sound familiar uh, because we eventually turn that into uh, the latest fractal. Um, but uh, we, I, I wanted to go somewhere big. Um, the team wanted to go somewhere big. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, were, we were bouncing off ideas on, uh, on a whiteboard. And I can't remember who said it. Um, but uh, someone basically said, what if we went to space? <laughs> what, if we, what, what, if we, what if we went into the cosmos um, and, and how can we do that, uh-huh. right? Um, and so our, our goal became, you know, uh, okay, this is going to be the climactic moment in the trilogy of mm-hmm. Ark's story. Um, this needs to surpass uh, the Nightmare Fractal in terms of mechanical complexity because um, we, uh, with a Nightmare Fractal, we had shipped Challenge Mode, um, mm-hmm. which, side note, probably my favorite uh, thing that I've ever worked on um, from a player experience standpoint. Uh-huh. Um, we we had this conversation about challenge mode where we're like, we're not going to market it at all. There's going to be one release note that says the Harbinger is watching you or oh, has a sign or whatever it was. And we're going to get people to go, what the heck does that mean? Uh-huh. Uh, and eventually... You know, through play of the of the fractal, and then repeated play to unlock all the achievements, uh-huh. and get that meta achievement. Um, we, uh, you know, that would unlock the next time you go in. It's a little gadget. It's there at the entrance. What does that do? It's called challenge mode. And then you interact with it, and the harbinger of woe comes out, and is this badass enemy with like a cosmic-y looking effect to him? Uh-huh. Um, he's wearing the ad infinitum backpack. Um, he like. It, his very presence uh, in the dialogue box says that, you know, like it inspires fear uh, and you have the option to back away or you can be like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Um, uh-huh. and you activate challenge mode and it's an entirely new difficulty setting, changes up the, the environment zones. Um, just, you know, uh, we, we have recolors of the, the boss fights, removes uh-huh. all the, all the trash um, to, to make it to where it's something that you can just, you go mm-hmm. in and if, if you're going into challenge mode, you're going in for the awesome boss fights, you're going to do that. Yeah. Um, and you're going to want to so be able to retry quickly. Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and with that change, we made a bunch of systemic changes, like when you interact with the um, the singularity, it repairs your gear, because we knew that players were going to be throwing themselves over and over and over at these bosses. And we're like, we have the system that you always are going to interact with before a boss fight, but it mm-hmm. just repairs your gear. Um, but uh, anyway, I digress. Uh, Actually, I think we shouldn't digress. I think that the the starting to include challenge modes in Fractal is really important. Like, yeah. So, like, uh, there's been this uh, community conversation in all uh, instance PVE content for for Guild Wars Two that I can remember about what's the proper difficulty, what should it be, who should be, who's this experience really for? Because I mean, you have like the silent majority of people who are kind of just like, you know, they're pressing their buttons and having a good time. And then you have the yeah. people who are like getting whipping out their spreadsheets and like mapping out optimal rotations. And like, how do you how do you give an experience to both those groups? And the, the challenge mode is like an answer to that problem. I from what I've seen. Give me just a second. The sun is deciding it's going to go yeah, yeah. straight into my eyeballs. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> Watch the cord. Yeah, there you go. OK. Sorry, hate to cut you off, but that was just like ah. No, no, definitely, definitely take care of that. Uh, so, um, yeah, we're, um, I wanted to just pause for a moment and just, just 
just talk about how awesome it is that challenge modes became a thing that fractal players could look forward to and can can expect um because that wasn't yeah. a thing before and it gave a bunch of uh, people who want a more difficult and more involved mechanically a uh, piece of content something to chew on yeah um man okay so i can tackle this from a couple of different areas all right um so uh my my background is a hardcore raider um i raided yeah. really really hardcore in world of warcraft uh I which did a little bit um so i i started raiding in burning crusade um and got up to um mount hygel uh, and the first few bosses in Black Temple, but uh -huh. I was a wee little paladin and I did not know what I was doing. Hygel was a pain in the ass. Came. Oh my god. Hygel was a pain in the ass. Um, <laughs> An epic Jesus. pain in the ass. <laughs> that, that, uh, that instance. Um, yeah. It's nostalgic though, right? That's oh, yeah. the main appeal. Is you're, going, you're going to a place that you know about and you yeah. know what happens from Warcraft 3, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, so I... I I did those raids a little bit uh, whenever I was younger, and then mm -hmm. um, I really got into hardcore raiding with uh, Wrath of the Lich King. Okay. Um, okay. And I was part—I was part of a, a group of people um, at the very start of the expansion. We did Max Ramus. We did the ten man, the twenty-five man um, before they had the the hard modes uh, implemented. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, I did Ulduar uh, and did the hard modes whenever they were. Um, not just like a difficulty setting of the instance, but like a thing that you had to interact with to change right. the fight, which really quick is an incredibly amazing idea. And it is incredibly, uh, it, it's so much more um, expensive to build because huh. <laughs> you have to build a bunch of new scripts and you have to think of a way to organically like uh -huh. build it into the narrative of why things are more difficult uh -huh. um, versus uh -huh. just being like heroic mode. Like tick a box. Um, yeah. Right, exactly. Um, it's not systemic; it's content driven, and so uh, mm. so I did that. Um, I played all of the tiers uh, throughout Wrath of the Lich King. Um, I ended up, you know, doing everything up to uh, twenty-five men heroic Lich King, um, mm -hmm. which was probably one of my favorite encounters I've ever done. Um, I regret missing out I, on that. I, oh, it's, I, it's so good. I stopped raiding right when Old War came out, and I, oh. I, did, I, did, I did everything up until then. Yeah. Oh man, Oldor Oldor was such a special experience. Because uh -huh. um, I think that's where like uh where the, the raid designers like really hit their stride in creating incredibly difficult challenges mm -hmm. uh that people had to had to really like um rack their brains over and create mm -hmm. spreadsheets of math in order to, to get I remember uh man, this is a tangent, but I remember uh the final boss of Oldobar, Yog Saran. Um, its hard mode was actually a multi-tiered hard mode where you could turn off the different, um, what were they called, uh, the keepers. Right. Um, and each keeper gave you a different benefit uh, for the boss fight. And you mm -hmm. could just turn those off. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you wanted to do one keeper or two keeper or three keeper, you could do that. Um, but no keeper, Yog saran was incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was so difficult that people thought it was mathematically impossible okay. at the current gear level. Uh -huh. um, and I remember months of people just like yelling and screaming and being like, we need to take 10 bounds towards and like seven different arcane mages in order to even get close to being able to do this. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if, was, if those were the exact classes, but um, uh -huh. I, I, people were really trying to figure out like group composition wise and, and 
uh, it was a huge challenge for the community as a whole, for the raid yeah. community to figure out what was going on. And there was a lot of competition because like if a guild came out with a strategy um, or figured out a strategy to tackle that boss and win, um, then uh, they didn't want to share it until they were able to you know, yeah. take the world first. Yeah, and pre-streaming um, days too, you could hide that stuff a lot more effectively. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and a guild, uh, I want to say, man, um, oh, <laughs> Exodus. So uh, if I remember correctly, Exodus was the first guild to come out and say, we've completed the world first Yogg-Saron Zero Light. And everybody was like, nah, <laughs> liars, how? <laughs> Show me the proof. And they had the achievement. And, mm -hmm. and everybody was like, how? Uh, and it turned out that, that was one of the first big fiascos of a world first race um, because uh, the reason they were able to do it is they had a holy paladin go down into, in the fight, there are elements where you can go into a portal to go into like a mine zone. Um, and okay. uh, you have to send a group of people in mm -hmm. in order to um, kill a bunch of ads uh, and then get out before uh, an attack goes off in the mine zone that kills everybody. Okay. Right? Okay. And so um, the, uh, the way that they completed the encounter uh, was that they sent a group of people in including one holy paladin mm -hmm. and one other paladin, I, I can't remember. Um, and uh, the there was an ability that paladins had back in the day called uh, Divine Intervention, mm -hmm. I believe it was called. Mm -hmm. And the way it worked is if you had a regent on you, you could use the ability while targeting your ally, you would die, but you would put an invulnerability shield on them and they would live through anything. And it turns out that if you do that to a person who's in the mind room, when that big attack goes off that's supposed to kill everybody, it doesn't kill them. Uh, and level design-wise, this is the area where you're fighting Yogg-Saron and all uh -huh. of the ads that pop up. And underneath is the mind room. So when you take uh -huh. that portal, you go down here. And it's close enough, uh, the center point is close enough here that you can aggro creatures from around the top layer by using healing skills on yourself to develop aggro. Uh -huh. uh, and if you're a paladin, you can put on Righteous Fury, which is your tanking stance to increase your aggro management. Uh -huh. uh, and so a holy paladin would go in there, put on Righteous Fury after being divine uh, interventioned. Uh -huh. And then that final phase, which one of the most difficult parts of that final phase was that there were these constantly spawning ads uh -huh. that you had to deal with on top of dealing with Yogg-Saron. Tank them all. You could trivialize that by just having a dude standing in the middle of the mind room uh -huh. uh, and healing himself over and over and over, generating aggro. And all of the ads would just go to the center of the room and you could just ignore them. And that was how Exodus actually ended up killing that boss, if I remember correctly. I didn't know that story. Um, That's a good one. It's, it's, it is. It's lore. It's mythology. It's not uh, mythology. It's actual. It's history, right? Um, reading history is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and but you know, shortly afterwards, um, what was the fallout? After it was proven, yeah. Well, so you know, one Exodus lost a lot of cred, uh, uh, and uh, there was a you know a, a lot of discourse in the community. Um, uh, and, you know, people went back to, ah, so it is mathematically impossible. 
Right. Uh, but then, which reminds me of Vanilla with with Cthune, right? Because that's that was one of the big complaints yes. about Cthune uh, before it was nerfed. Is and I think it was, I think it might have been like Eden Hasacostas was part of that conversation too. You know, who's now running the whole ship as a fan yeah. at the time, saying this is mathematically impossible, and they nerfed it. But anyway, yeah, continue, it, it, continue. Cthune was crazy too. Uh, man, that was a that was a nuts fight for the time. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it it figures the two old god boss fights are the ones that were considered to be mathematically impossible, Those right? Crafty old Feel gods. like that might be intentional. Uh, uh-huh. But uh-huh. yeah, so a, a guild that was like really not super well known. Um, I want to say their name was Stars, uh, if I remember correctly. They uh, quietly defeated the boss fight and then uploaded their logs. And while they did stack some uh classes i want to say hunters were mm-hmm. involved um they didn't they did it didn't seem to be anything that was like an exploit right they were just that good they were okay. that on point and uh and it was a huge celebration moment um yeah it's that that boss fight was crazy uh-huh. um uh-huh. anyway uh, that's my tangent. Let's see. We got onto that because of uh, CMs. Uh, yeah, CMs and rating. Um, so challenging content uh, is is really important for a game that's going to have a long lifespan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people misunderstand why it's important. Because okay. um, a lot of people will say, um, well, it's really important that you have content for your most hardcore fans because they're the ones that care about your game the most. And yes, that is absolutely 100% true. It is really important. But what's more important is that you have aspirational content that more people can look forward to one day doing. Uh uh And if you set yourselves up right with the right systems and you make it accessible and attractive to get better at a game, practice and to maybe join some harder groups and to tackle some content on a ladder mm-hmm. that leads you up to that aspirational content mm-hmm. having that aspirational content there regardless of how many people consume it uh it's it's still beneficial right uh, because it gives players goals yeah. it allows them to have something that over years they mm-hmm. will still want to do mm-hmm. um and only you know even though only the hardcorest of the hardcore fans end up doing it how do you think a hardcore fan is born? They start yeah. playing the game. They get really into it. Everyone starts They get casual. really good at it. Yeah, exactly. They mm-hmm. all start somewhere, and then they're attracted to, I want to do that one day. Or they yeah. see someone run by on a mount uh, or with an armor skin, and they're like, I want to look like that guy. I want to have what that guy has. That guy's mm-hmm. building Thunder Fury, Blessed Blade of the Windseeker. Oh, I want yeah. that. How do oh, I do yeah. that? Uh, and, and having those kinds of things, uh, is really important. There's a balance, right? If it's not accessible enough to where it's, it's, you know, something that you just absolutely can't expect to ever get. Like if it's a 0.0000001% drop rate, it might as well just not exist. Like Sulfurus or the, or Thunder Fury. Right, exactly. Those, uh, you know, there are some, there's some arguments to be made about why having such rare items is important because it does create that like, oh my god, you Believe have me, that? I did a whole uh, talk about this recently. I'm right there with you. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so so yeah, so the, the aspirational content is really important. And in Guild Wars 2, we didn't have aspirational content um, outside of crafting legendary items mm-hmm. until Heart of Thorns. 
<laughs> and then with Heart of Thorns, we released raids. And raids, by default, were pretty difficult, yeah. um, especially in a game that uh, was considered to be pretty accessible and easy uh, from a PvE content standpoint. Right. Um, some of the hard hardest bosses in the game up at that point, not counting world bosses, uh, were things like Giganticus Lupicus right. um, and some of the bosses in, in the uh, city of Ra. Um, but we didn't have anything that was on the level of like a raid boss, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have something that required that really intimate group coordination that is really only possible with a close-knit group of people or people talking over voice. Mm -hmm. um, and so with raids, we, we created that aspirational content. But um, my opinion is that we didn't have a ladder that led up to that. So we, where World of Warcraft has difficulty modes and they have dungeons and they have raids that um, mm -hmm. are normal mode and hard mode, um, they give you a bunch of steps to take on your right. way to doing the thing. Right. And with Guild Wars 2, we released that final rung of the ladder, um, but we didn't have the rungs that allow you to go. So you could leap, and if you were a really good player, you could grab onto that rung and you can go and do that content. Uh -huh. um, but we weren't, we weren't really preparing players through the content that we already had. Um, and Fractals was the closest place that we had something similar. Right? Yeah, yeah. So so that's where Challenge Mode was born. Uh, was we, we, we talked and, and we were like, we think that Fractals has the potential to be um, as challenging as Raids. Um, mm -hmm. We think that Fractals are going to be more accessible by the fact that they are five-person content and we mm -hmm. don't have nearly as strict uh, role requirements. You can usually just go in with a group of five people no matter what. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we think that creating this additional difficulty mode out of content that already exists, not brand new content, but content that already exists, um, that we're already building, uh, is just efficient. Um, it's, it's just more bang for a buck. Sure. Um, and... It's an investment, um, and there's a little bit of risk in that if it doesn't do what it seeks out to do, then, you know, try again, right? Right. Um, but it was, it was really important to us that we, that we ship, and we had a lot of internal conversations um, about, you know, uh, should we do it? Should we not do it? Are we, are we misstepping by doing this? Um, and, and, and it won out, we ended up shipping it, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and it got great reviews. Um, yeah. and you know, it's, it's something that like, if you're new to the game, I'm not going to suggest that you go and play a challenge mode. Right. Uh, but the cool thing about fractals is that they have tiers of difficulty that you can, you can build through. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of the reason that really solidified our desire to want to build them in fractals, um, was that, uh, we had that stepped ladder of difficulty within the game mode. So you could take a fractal and approach it from a tier one difficulty first, learn the basics, learn the ropes, get knowledge of the, the very basic mechanics that you need to know, go to two, get a little bit better, go to three, go to get a little bit better. And the idea was that by the time that you were a master of tier four, you could then graduate to challenge mid fractals, mm -hmm. um, and we had everything there that uh, you know allowed people to to climb that ladder and get to that place. And then from there, if you're really good at challenge mode fractals, um, you're probably the kind of player that's going to do really well in raids. So like, yeah. go try it out, right? Um, and that was the goal. Um, and I think we I think we did a good job of of creating that extra step. Um, 
do I think we can improve? Yeah, we can always improve. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it did it did become something that uh, one of the downsides was um, it was uh, creating design debt. Right. Okay. Once you release design, once you release a, a, a content mode like uh-huh. challenge mode, uh-huh. the expectation is that you're going to release uh-huh. more challenge modes. Yes. Uh, and so, um, so you have to when you when you make a decision to do that. Um, you got to think long term and you got to think, uh, you know, do I have buy in um, from all parts of the studio? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do I have buy in from uh, my directors? Do I have buy in from my design leads? Um, How, what does it look know, like can, to get that kind of buy in? Uh, it's a process of running a lot of numbers um, uh-huh. and proving through data uh, and philosophy that um, it is a healthy decision for your game. Okay. Um, there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, a lot of things like, does it drive player retention? Mm-hmm. Does it um, does it get more players to try out the game mode? Um, does it get more people to to jump back into the game? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if they've been uh, if they're lapsed players who haven't played in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we what we found through our data collection with Nightmare was that um, it ticked all of those boxes exceptionally well. Um, and uh, I don't know the exact numbers off the top of my head right now, um, but at the time, Nightmare, I believe, was the most played Fractal for months after its release by a factor of four. Wow. That, that is incredible Holy success. <laughs> um, and it proved, it proved that that, uh, at least to me, it proved that's what players want. Right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. Uh, they want options and that hardcore crowd exists. Um, and oftentimes uh, that hardcore crowd is the, the group that is going to be the most vocal um, and give you the most free marketing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the most yeah. free press. Uh, and so um, so servicing Passionate them, and engaged uh, is, players who are willing to put in the time. Those are the folks yeah, who are going to exactly. show up, who are going to make content. Those are the folks who are going to be posting stuff on Reddit, like do stuff exactly. on the wiki. That's the person yeah. you want to you want to romance almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You want to form that relationship with them. Um, and and that's not to say that like every super engaged member of our community, every hardcore player of our community is uh, wants to have that kind of content, right? Right. But there is a, there is a section of our, of our community that really wants that challenging group combat. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's, that's who we were targeting. Because mm-hmm. um, that's another really important thing is... Um, and, and a misstep that a lot of game developers will make uh, is they try to please everybody um, and they try to make something, a little something for everybody. You, you hear that marketing term a lot. Um, and I don't know, for me, when I, when I hear there's a little something for everybody, I'm like, a little something for everybody yeah. isn't going to really entice me to stay around for a while. That's yeah. just my opinion. Of the game no, I have, I have uh, the same read. If, if, it's, if it's for everyone, it's really for no one. Right. It might satisfy you for a little bit. Um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, so going from uh, Nightmare releasing with the challenge mode, having the success <laughs> that we found there, we um, decided to do Cosmic. Uh, sorry, Shattered Observatory. The internal name is Cosmic. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, um, the Shattered Observatory Fractal um, was uh, the first time that uh, I was able to develop alongside Ben Arnold uh, from the very beginning of development uh-huh. all the way through production. Um, whereas with Nightmare, I was, you know, I was on QA for a lot of it. Uh, and uh, 
Shattered was, uh, without getting into too much details, um, the previous year, the previous fall, uh, was really, really difficult for me. Um, and uh, some personal stuff, some family stuff. Okay. And so I, I dove into my work. Um, and so I put a lot of like my heart and soul into, um, into the experience of playing Shattered Observatory and tried to make, um, I think I might've gone a little bit overboard, but make uh, what I wanted to be the, like the pinnacle five man challenging content. In the yeah. Game. Um, and, yeah. Uh, and, and we sought out to do that. Um, we've got a bunch of new tech um, because of the success of Nightmare, it was clear that Fractals was, you know, was a lucrative uh, content form. Um, and so Ben and I invested in a lot of new tech, then built uh, Win Tech, uh, the mm-hmm. stuff that you see everywhere now where you get pushed yeah. around and, uh, and okay. stuff. That was uh, ideated and created uh, in the Cosmic Fractal, sorry, right. Shattered Observatory, because right. uh, we had a... Cosmic Shattered Observatory. Cosmic Shattered Observatory. Just to give people a little bit of mental memory there. There. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, but there were some mechanics that I had built, uh, like on the first boss, um, you have the the moment where uh, you get the boss down to 66% health, mm-hmm. you got to run into uh, the little orb thing that's uh, popped up and that shoots you off to the next platform. Oh, right, right, um, right. Yeah. I had a very janky solution for that. That was like, uh, it was super perf heavy and it didn't mm-hmm. feel good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, it works, uh, which is a lot of time. <laughs> A lot of time, designers, that's what we have to do. We, we have a tool set to build things with. Uh, and in order to make cool things, sometimes you just got to be okay with them not being the best thing ever. Yep, right? A little bit of duct they tape, a little bit of cardboard to make it work. Yeah, bubblegum. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, so so Ben saw that, and uh, we had this conversation uh, about like how to possibly solve it. And I, I forget exactly how the conversation went, but eventually it led to, um, if we did wind, in our game, what if we had the ability to push players around mm-hmm. uh, with wind forces? Um, that would open up so many cool new opportunities of like being able to have tornadoes that spin you around. Because uh, mm-hmm. previously we had tornadoes that just constantly knocked you back, and it felt terrible. Yeah, uh, we could we could actually just move you around smoothly. Mm-hmm. Um, we could do things like you know pull you up into the orb and then launch you to the next place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of my favorite uh, things that we were able to do with it. Uh, is by looking into WinTech, we were actually able to do low gravity. Um, and so that also mm-hmm. helped out with it being, you know, the um, the, the uh, space environment that you get to after that first initial right. section. Right. Um, now you're actually in space and you feel like you're in space because you're like, whoa, I'm jumping. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really fun. And that's that's how a lot of game development works. It's like someone has a crazy idea and... Uh, if they're partnered up with the right person uh, or the right programmer, uh, you know the, that person is just like, uh, that's that's not the way to do it. Here's the way to do it, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and yeah. then you know, crazy things happen. Yeah. Um, God bless uh, the so, programmers and the tool developers. Oh God, God yes. Uh, we could not build the game without them, um, and it would be so much more janky uh, mm-hmm. if they didn't mm-hmm. support us as they did. Um, so. God bless you. Thank you. I love you all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, so cosmic uh, cosmic was was uh, an experiment in and of itself, right? Um, yeah. Because okay. we tried out all this new tech, uh, mm-hmm. and we uh, we created some new mechanics uh, for the cosmic fractal. Like we had um, 
so the first boss, you know, focused around WinTech and focused around launching you around the areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also uh, focused a little bit more on like highly telegraphed attacks that were incredibly dangerous. So you've got mm-hmm. a lot of like really wide cones that come out in patterns, yeah. um, but longer telegraphs so that you have time to find where the safe zone is. Okay. Um, this The second so boss- more punishing, uh, but still visible. Right, exactly. Because yeah. one of the things that we, we looked at with combat in Guild Wars 2 um, that we really, we really wanted to, to kind of uh, try and tackle incrementally with uh, the fractals, um, starting with Nightmare, actually, uh, was that there, there are a lot of attacks, especially in the older game, um, mm-hmm. that don't have really visible telegraphs, especially when there's a lot of people in an mm-hmm. area and mm-hmm. they're all firing off their skills. Um, it, get, it gets lost in the sea of noise of the effects of everything, um, which is just, it's, that's going to happen in an online game, right? Um, and so it requires a bit of a shift in mentality and design philosophy to accommodate that. Um, and so you have, to, you have to build in a little bit more intentional windups. Um, you kind of have to go a little bit further than you might think uh, for giving players uh, a little bit more time to react. Mm. Uh, my golden rule of thumb is like 2.5 to 3 seconds of like, uh, bam, right? And if you haven't moved at, in, in that time, like, you either weren't paying attention or you were locked down or, or whatever. Sure, um, sure. Or you hadn't seen the attack before and you don't know the timing. Right. But it's a lot easier to learn that timing than pop, right? Like that's Twitch. Yeah, which is kind uh, of like memorization. Twitch. Like you kind of get it in, in your mind and then you, you're doing a series of steps versus actually being in the moment and reacting, which is right. a lot more fun, I think. Exactly. It's, it's pattern recognition, right? Yeah. Um, and that's super fast reaction time. That's really, really good for like, um, for like action games uh, and mm-hmm. fighting games, mm-hmm. um, but it's uh, especially with an MMO where you have like some latency involved. Um, it's really important to try and build in a little bit more of that grace period. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so Cosmic, you know, continue to build off that philosophy. Um, our second boss, uh, she used a lot of uh, pattern-based attacks, uh, things that you know like followed a path and created cool little patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the bouncing marble mechanic. Mm-hmm, uh, which mm-hmm. uh, was like super fun and unique. I like um, that. And we had the doom, the doom mechanic. I think is probably one of my favorite that we did for that fractal. Uh-huh. Of you know, one player has to stand inside of the zone, or else everybody gets killed. Um, it's it's very it's a very simple interaction, mm-hmm. but it creates so much tension, and it gets the group to be like, oh no 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 go 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 go. Uh, you only yeah, have yeah. a certain amount of time. You got to react, right? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we put all of that stuff together and we created some more unique mechanics for ARC. Um, and ARC was, uh, was super challenging to put together. Um, I, I spent a lot of time uh, going through different iterations of that fight. There mm-hmm. were times where it was a circular platform. There mm-hmm. were times where at one point it was like a, a stepped cylinder where you would like bounce back and forth between different platforms oh, to get to the top and then you'd fight ARC. Huh. Um, and ultimately, we we landed on okay. It's a square with a grid. We're going to call back to the Chaos Isles where we had the grid uh, with the Gladiator fight. Right. Um, and this time, they're smaller tiles, and they'll just drop out from under you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that was that was a really fun fight. Um, and the challenge modes for those fights uh, as well were were a lot of fun to put together. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The look away mechanic that we ended up putting in uh, that was that was a lot of fun. Um, Cosmic, like where where Nightmare focused on um, animations and highly telegraphed attacks, and then we focused on Bullet Hell because we were really really excited about Near Automata at the time. Okay, okay, uh, that's good to know. 
<laughs> we 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 you know focused a lot more on like the action uh, side of things with Nightmare, and then we took those lessons and we applied them to Cosmic, but we um, we injected uh, more classical MMO group responsibilities of like you have this thing you must go here or people die, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and I think I think it worked out well. It's definitely one of the more challenging fights uh, or fractals in the game. Um, and, uh, that's why it is so up, uh, so high up on the scale list. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. I, I, I think it's, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, and I always enjoy playing it whenever I get a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good one, man. It's one of my favorites. Um, that's good and, here. and of course this fractal had, um, as you mentioned, the conclusion of a, a little fractal story arc. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, you know, we were we were telling a really personal story that was hidden behind the visage of a non-personal story, right? Yeah. Um, we we were piecemealing out, um, you know, the relationship between Ark and Dessa, and spoilers. Um, you know, at the end of of Shattered Observatory, you find out that Ark is Dessa's son, um, mm-hmm. and uh, that they are in fact um, in their own kind of meta time loop. Uh, and so it's a little tragic um, and a little hauntingly beautiful that they can't escape their fate, um, yeah. you know, through all the work that Ark had done to create uh, the diaphanous diffraction randomizer. Um, he was not able to, to break uh, the rules of the fractals environment. He right. simply added another layer on top of them. Yeah. Um, and, and seeing him come to that realization uh, I, I want to say it was Matt Mercer yeah. who ended up voice, voicing Ark. Um, did such a stellar performance uh, of of seeing him after that fight, going through and being like, "No, no, 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 no! I ran the numbers. I ran the numbers. This should work." And then realizing that like there was a fundamental flaw in his logic that mm-hmm. he forgot that he was working in the fractals. Uh, and so there are things that even he doesn't understand that are keeping him yeah. uh, from being able to achieve his goal. Um, and so, you know, we uh, one of the things that we we went over whenever we knew we wanted to tell the end of that story was um, first we wanted to give players uh, the ability to um, to leave the fractal on replay, bef- you know, without having to see that whole scene. Cause it's fairly long. Right. Um, right. But we also, you know, we wanted to give players the, the ability to sit and kind of take in uh, an intimate moment uh, that they, they had earned by going through the storyline. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of it, you know, if you've got everything, uh, if you've got all the achievements, you can actually go up to Dessa. Um, and I, I believe there's a conversation option that is only available if you've done everything. Oh, um, really? That, that. that gives a little. It, it's uh, it's either Dessa or Yoko um, mm-hmm. that you can go up to, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and you have that little conversation option that pops up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to spoil that specifically, okay? Because uh, if anybody is interested in going and seeing what it is, you should go. It's cool. Yeah, Cosmic was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I love. I think this is one of the coolest things that games get to do, and you touched on this earlier. Is Find a way to let us not just see and hear human stories, but be agents in them, you know? Yeah. To make them go. And um, I think that, I think that um, first off, I think that the story is, is effective. Like it works. Like, you buy it. 
And I love how it loops into the mechanics of the world. Like that is, is such a, it's a moment that makes you think harder about the way the world works. And it also touches you somewhere that you understand, which is the, the sorrow of losing a loved one. Um, yeah, it's actually, uh, it's actually a narrative thread that we revisited uh, with the uh, Sunqua Peak Fractal as well. Right. Um, yeah, sorry, that's a, that's a long story. I'm willing to talk about it, uh, but it is, it is definitely uh, a long one. Um, and we kind of skip ahead a little bit in the years because that is uh, this past year, 2020. Sure, sure. Um, so what's the next, the best next logical place to take this? Where do you want to go? Um, so uh, let's see. So you finish the Cosmic Fractal. Comes out. Yeah. You People are liking it. Yes. Um, so finish, finish the Cosmic Fractal. Um, and... Uh, Actually, before the Cosmic Fractal shipped, um, I was approached uh, by one of our lead designers and was asked, um, hey, uh, we have you know, a lot of ambition for the story that we want to tell um, mm -hmm. in Living World Season 4. Um, and uh, we're trying to put together a team that we feel very confident is going to be able to deliver the narrative storytelling quality um, that we want to hit. Um, and uh, we know you really like building fractals. Um, but we think that uh, we would like you to join the Living World team for a little while, uh -huh. focus on uh, on open world content and some story instance content there. Because um, again, ArenaNet was it is my first you know job in the industry, uh -huh. um, and so my experience as a designer up to that point was um, very you know very narrow in mm -hmm. uh, the encounter design uh, side of things. Right. Um, right. Yeah, and specifically MMO and, and massive multiplayer encounter design. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they, they, they gave me an opportunity to, to kind of um, learn some new skill sets and, and philosophies and methodologies for uh, storytelling and games in general, okay. um, as well as the open world side of MMOs, um, which as games you know become more and more online and connected, we see more open world uh games that you can play co-op mm -hmm. um and so you know that would that would translate really well um if i ever you know wanted to move studios uh which i don't mm. but um so i i moved over to living world uh and we were doing what? living world season four right and uh i joined uh the team that was working on episode two mm -hmm. uh, which would be called bug in the system mm -hmm. um and uh it was a lot of fun. Um, it was very different. Um, and it was a little heartbreaking to, to leave behind fractals. Um, cause I felt like, you yeah. know, I was, uh, I, I had, uh, I had been there for, you know, less than a year pumped out, uh, two, two fractals that I were, was incredibly proud of. I had, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I had this idea for what I was going to do, um, with the next ones and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, but you know, I left uh, the, sorry, I, I didn't leave the team in good hands. The team was in good hands, right? Uh -huh. um, and so, uh, so moving over to Living World um, was a little bittersweet. But I enjoyed a lot mm. of my time on the Living World team, um, and and I value it a lot. What uh, were some I of started, the challenges you faced in getting into that? Um, well, so uh, one of the first things is um, as a person who had spent that uh, his whole design time 
uh, up to that point, thinking about encounters and thinking about uh -huh. boss fights and creatures and stuff, um, I had to shift gears uh, because you can't just put a bunch of boss fights in the open world that are at the same difficulty level as challenge mode fractals. Yeah. Uh, and and luckily, you know, the the tiered system of fractals um, and being able to create things at, at dynamic difficulties lended itself towards um, an easier transition into creating like standalone creatures, um, creating open world events, um, which is an entirely different system that I had to learn from scratch. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Creating, uh, at the time we were, we were doing the repeatable hearts again. Um, and so building those out uh, for the first time was fun. Um, I started doing um, open world content uh, specifically. Um, and uh, my first big project was the Olmacon. Um, oh. We, we knew that we wanted to go to um, somewhere on the map that uh, was not in GW1 um, because a lot of the Path of Fire uh, and Season 4 maps were GW1, and, and there's a lot of nostalgia there, um, and there's a lot of value in that nostalgia, um, but we wanted to kind of expand the world a little bit. Yeah. And so we came up, came up with this idea of here's this peninsula. You know, it looks like it's got a volcano on it. What's that look like? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and over the course of a few months uh, of ideation and kind of prototyping and going back and forth, um, we came up with the idea for Sandswept Isles. And, and one of the things uh, at the core of it um, that I'm really, really proud of, uh, of the team that I got to work with to, to bring them to life is the Olmacon. Because mm. um, uh, I love the char. Um, huh. But I also think that the char uh, needed, it, it felt like the culture of the char uh, was missing something. They okay. were missing uh, char that didn't fit into the mold of of being part of the machine, yeah. right? Um, yeah. yeah. And the only other the only other version that we had of that um, was uh, the Flame Legion, which were the uh -huh. bad guys, right? Yeah, they Until were the 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 opposite extreme. They were they they were char times ten, kind of. Right. Exactly. Um, they they were the the uh, the fascist char at the mm -hmm. time. Um, and so, uh, what I, what I ended up doing, uh, was I, I remember getting into a room and kind of just like bouncing some ideas off, uh, with one of our writers, um, and one of our designers about, you know, like what if we had char, but they were naturalistic. What if they were like, not hippies, uh, cause that's like two in a box, right. Mm -hmm. Um, it's too stereotypical. Uh, but, um, you know, what if they were, what if they were more just like, living off the land. Mm -hmm. um, they, they weren't about, uh, you know, pumping up iron and using it to create these yeah. great iron citadels. Um, they weren't about, you know, super high uh, technology that uh, was, was killing the world. Yeah. Um, and they were more about balance and um, a lot of philosophies uh, that center around, um, you know, family. Uh, okay. and, and, uh, and kindness, um, kindness from a place of, uh, not necessarily obligation, but, uh, of a desire to just be good. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, kindness without expectation of anything in return. Um, and so, uh, and so we worked to create this new culture, um, created this huge backstory. Uh, we created some, like, uh, some, some tales that they would, uh, you know, pass down to their children, like the iron whale, the, the you know, the crashed airship that is where the, the elders sit. 
Um, that was, you know, like a little story that we had put together. Cool. Um, cool. And we worked cool, really hard to to bring that culture to life and to breathe uh, life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in a new way that we hadn't really seen before in GW two, um, and that was great. Yeah, uh, I really love that. I really love that. Like, you know, I, I heard you mention like the old game before, thinking of like like release Guild Wars two and a lot of the NPC cultures are kind of like there to be like, they're there to be enemies sometimes mm -hmm. or they're there to oppose some force like for the good or the bad stuff like that. And really the sense I got playing through through the episode and going to the Olmacon village, which I, I love it, it. It has a real decent footprint on the map. It's not just like a, it's not a waypoint, right? Like there, there's, there's clearly something built up there, but like, you know what they're for. I cut out. What? Okay, I'm back. We're good? Yes, I think so. Did you lose me? <laughs> yeah, just for a little bit. I think okay. we're good, though. I was just talking about how I love you, that you get a sense of what the Olmacon are for, exactly what, what, what you're talking about. Like, um, the, the value... I, I, I think that in, in, like, on, in like shared worlds and online worlds, they tend to grow and evolve over time. That like when, you, when, you, when, you, when you have something like, like the Olmacon... And you and you take the time to create the culture, breathe life, give them a unique footprint, and make the player feel and understand what that footprint means. You can then it gives you a very powerful tool in the future. So when you bring the Olmacan into another situation, like you, you understand what's coming in, you know, mm -hmm. in a way that like if you're getting like a, a a human separatist, like in the char versus human conflict, you kind of don't. It's like, oh, I, I hate these other race. It's like, okay, but like, what what are you like as a person? Um, right. And that the, the go ahead. The depth uh, is uh, is hard to to find without kind of drawing your own conclusions. Okay. Because because like the the separatists is a good example, right? Like mm -hmm. they they wear who they are on their sleeve, right? So yeah, there's not really an opportunity. Yeah, exactly. There's not really yeah. an opportunity to ask like. I mean, there is because we're game developers and we can, you know, at some point we can just be like, what if a separatist, you know, had a, a, mm -hmm. a more in-depth story? Um, but, you know, as it stood, it, it was like you, you kind of knew who, who they were and what you were getting into. Mm -hmm. um, and for a lot of factions in a game, sometimes it's really important to, to um, have something that's very clearly antagonistic, right? Oh, right, right. Um, but uh, but I personally, as a storyteller, um, and I know a lot of uh, other people on the team agree with me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, a lot of our narrative team uh, feels the same way as this: uh, is that um, where we can find depth uh, in anything is just going to make a better product mm -hmm. um, because it allows us to tell more intricate stories. It allows us to dive further into the characters, further into their motivations, mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes it gives us a lot more. Uh, in terms of uh, content that we can follow up on in the future if we wanted to. Yeah. Seeds that we can plant. That's exactly what I was thinking when I was so clumsily suggesting that having uh, an in-depth culture like that with something that the players feel and understand and can empathize with is, um, it's very different than if you say, okay, well, who, who is this person that we're bringing into the story, like in this future, or whatever? And it's like, oh, it's an Olmacon. I know what that means. Or, oh, it's a separatist. Like, okay, this person just hates Char. Like, is there anything more to this person's character? Like, what do we know about this person? How do they live? What were their, what's their family like? You know nothing about this person, actually. You just know one opinion they have. Yeah. Um, 
Whereas when when you the the Omicron, uh, it's it's a very different vibe. So I, I I appreciate that a lot. So I just wanted to reflect that. I'm glad that you do. Um, it was it was a labor of love because um, we, you know, we we built uh, we built a brand new culture. Uh, we uh-huh. had to create an entirely new backstory. Um, and uh, th- one of the hardest parts about introducing um, a new faction into a into a game like Guild Wars 2, um, into a persistent online world, uh, especially and, and uh, actually particularly a friendly faction, uh-huh. um, is uh, how do you get players invested, right? Mm. How, do you, how do you get them invested in who they are um, and, and who they, like what they stand for as a faction? Um, and ideally, especially in an MMO where players can play as the same character race as the faction you're introducing, Mm-hmm. How can you get someone to ask the question, could I be part of these people? Right. Could I join their ranks? Right. Uh-huh. Um, and what and would so, that mean? Uh, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and and we, we asked a lot of these questions and we talked uh, to, um, to our artists uh, and to our, our narrative team uh, and uh, the audio team uh, about like what kind of music they would have in their, in their village uh-huh. Um, what kind of sounds that they would, uh, you know, would make uh, with the tools that they have. Um, we we talked about, uh, you know, from a design point, uh, what kind of mounts they would use. Um, oh. And we landed on, we landed on skimmers because they're in the aisles. And so, you know, yeah. it makes sense yeah. for them to have something to go over water, yeah. um, which I find hilarious because charge is big cats. So yeah. in my mind, they're just so afraid of water that they're like, <laughs> Skimmers are our best friend because they keep us dry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but you, you know, and we, I, I think one of my favorite things that um, ended up coming out of those discussions um, is is towards the point of allowing players to kind of live the fantasy of being one of them, uh, which is that we got new horn styles for the char. Mm. Um, we, we got new horn and I believe some new hairstyles mm-hmm. specifically designed around the aesthetic of the Omicron. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we not only put them onto the Omicron, uh, excuse me, NPCs in the world, we added them to the character uh, creation mm-hmm. process. And so if you want to create an Omicron, you have aesthetic options to help reinforce that. You don't have to just have a head cannon anymore mm-hmm. you have real in-game uh you know solid proof yeah. that grounds you as a character of that yeah. kind of uh of that kind of uh, faction yeah. um and that's that's something that we don't often get to do um mm-hmm. and it was an absolute pleasure to be able to do it mm-hmm. um that's very cool it's very cool man yeah so you, you can come up as a char in the legions doing big char things war machines blah 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 and then you get to know the old Makan. You're like, you know what? I'm gonna change. I'm gonna change. I'm gonna be one of these people. I love that. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I think there's I think there's some interesting character stories that I've seen players come out with um, where they have uh, told their their own stories of their characters um, coming across the Omicron uh-huh. uh, and learning learning of their culture and then um, converting to their culture. Uh, and, mm. and leaving their old life behind, and it's it's really it's really heartwarming, yeah. um, and it, it fills me with a lot of pride. That's great, um, man. Good for you. Yeah, Good yeah, for it's, the team. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. A lot of people work to make that happen, mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, I, I could not have done it alone. Mm-hmm. And I'm super okay. grateful because it was just a random fucking idea that I had uh, that I took into a meeting one day and I'm like, Wild Char, that was their original name. Wild Char. <laughs> what if they were like living off the land and they were predators and like blah, 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 and they were wearing, you know, like tribal gear and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Um, and I turned into the Omicron. It was great. That's cool, dude. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so other than the Omicron, what did you get to work on in bugging the system? Uh, bug in the system, I ended up uh, helping out with... Um, so I built uh, a lot of the open world content for the northern part of the map with uh-huh. the Omicron. Mm-hmm. Um, I built the uh, the event where the big prop boss um, golem that you see in the Asura starting instance, the um, Mark II, right. drops from the sky and, and can you can fight it in a couple of different places, built that event. Sure, um, sure. I built spear fishing, uh, which oh. I still think is hilarious. Uh-huh. Uh, I, re- I remember prototyping that out, and it was absolutely a gag at first. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was like, I bet I could put fishing into our game by just having a spear gun, and you shoot a creature, and then we have a system, uh, you know, like projectiles. Uh, we assign a model to the projectile to uh-huh. make it mm-hmm. look like something. And I was like, I could make a projectile that's a fish. Uh, and so uh, that was like, I could shoot a fish and then press another button and have it jump out of the water as a projectile. Uh-huh. And spearfishing Fired back at you. That's, that's yeah. beautiful, dude. Was, you need fun. fishing in uh, your MMO. <laughs> it's great. It's great. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I love that we were able to get that in. Um, and let's see what else we were, we were, excuse me. What else did I work on? Uh, I helped out with the third instance, um, for that, that episode. So the one mm-hmm. where, um, you actually, uh, engage with and meet the Omicron with Bram. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go about the, the path with Bram during the attack from all the inquest golems. Um, that was a lot of fun, uh, mm-hmm. to set up, um, a lot of, uh, a lot of unique challenges from that. Um, okay. like, uh, an example um, is uh, we have the animation for uh, a player character holding up their shield. I'm using mm-hmm. the left arm, but holding up their shield uh, to you know block a projectile, right? Um, and a player character can move forward while they're using that skill um, uh-huh. because we've built that system in, uh, and the input is driven by the player, so that mm-hmm. the game allows them to do that. But a creature cannot inherently perform that same action. And so that's why you don't see creatures moving and using skills at the same time, mm-hmm. um, because to do that requires a lot more uh, authoring uh, of the content and, and creating the skill in a different way. Sure. Um, and in some cases, it requires entirely new animation, which is really expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had this idea of like, okay, well, Brand needs to protect the cubs, um, and uh, and he's a guardian. So how does he do that? He creates a you know shield of absorption. But we need him to walk, and so I I don't want him to like go to a point shield of absorption, have a bunch of waves come around, fight the waves. He puts the shield down while he's being bombarded with all of these other things running through. We could yeah. have done that, yeah. But uh, but I, I really I really 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 wanted to see uh, if we could do um, an animation uh, where. Bram is holding up the shield of absorption and is struggling to hold it as he yeah. moves through the bombardment of all of those. That's the uh, moment, man. 
that's the big fantasy moment right there. Like the warrior right. with the shield and the waves. Like that's what you want. Like, that's the tank fantasy. I'm yes. protecting my allies by, you're not going to get through <laughs> these. Uh, and, and it was a lot of fun uh, to, to get that built out. Um, mm-hmm. the, the animator that I worked with on that uh, just absolutely killed it. Um, mm-hmm. And it ended up being a little bit simpler than I had expected. Um, That's always nice. But we used, yeah, we used a, a couple of new tech uh, that we had created um, previously that um, we were struggling to find use for, and mm-hmm. uh, it fit the bill for this exact thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it allows us to kind of override uh, the animation state of a player, so I can turn your walk uh, into whatever I want. Right, oh. so you don't have to be using the walk animation, and that's what I did with Bram. Is he's technically walking, but he's using this new animation that allows him to move forward hmm. um, okay. with his shield raised. Um, and so it's a little smoke and mirrors. Um, he's not using a skill the whole time. He's got a buff that applies the the shield around him and stuff. Duct tape and cardboard. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, just craftiness in general. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, and then you know that ended off with the the. Um, exterminator golem uh Mm -hmm. that uh pops out the the core um and i mentioned back when we were talking about world of warcraft and ulduar and that second Uh boss Uh that was going to be important it was going to come back all right i'm ready that boss fight was directly inspired by that uh mechanical interaction Uh from xt uh because you have the core pop out of xt you do the damage to it it goes back in you Uh keep doing mechanics Uh and i was like wouldn't it be really fucking cool there is an inquest golem uh-huh. uh, that uh, you you had to like get the core of the golem to come out, and then what if the golem was sentient uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like said lines and like tried to get away by jumping around and stuff using controlled <laughs> explosions? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was a lot of fun. That that fight uh, that fight was great. It was a new rig, uh, so I had a lot of fun um, building a new creature, and I got to stretch a lot of the design skills. Uh, that I had built making fractals sure. uh, in a living world episode by building uh-huh. a story boss that was a little bit more like a fractal boss. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. So yeah, so that's that's mostly what I worked on for episode two. There's a bunch of like other little things here and there that I helped out with, but mm-hmm. those are the main main key points. Word, word. You know, before we move on to post episode two things, I'd like to request another couple minute break. Can we do that? Yeah, absolutely. All right, be right back, folks. And we're back. I'm D talking to ArenaNet senior designer Cameron Rich. We were just chatting about um, one of his first um, design jobs that was not fractal related, working on Bug in the System episode two for season four of the Living World of Guild Wars two. So I know that you ended up working on War Eternal episode five as well. Was that the next thing that you went to after that? Or was there something All in between? That's what I meant. Word, yes. War Eternal was, was six. six. Yes. Thank you for correcting me. Thank you. Uh, but yes, uh, All or Nothing uh, was um, what I immediately jumped over to after episode two. I can imagine. Dude, I know we're going to talk about it, but what an episode. There is so much stuff yeah. in that episode. So I'm going to tell you a little story, and then I'll let you tell me yours. But I am... Um, I actually went back and after after playing the, the latest story release with uh, Primordis and Jormag, um, their confrontation, I um I went back and just 
re-experience a lot of the old dragon content just to get the sense of like what's like the overall dragon story been for guild wars i i made i made a little little video out of it and when i got up to war eternal that's where things like started sorry i keep saying war eternal all or nothing <laughs> okay. i got up to all or nothing like i i suddenly like i felt like almost like a switch was thrown in terms of like the stakes and the quality of the dragon storytelling which I know is a pain in the ass. And, I, and the arc of Orin's maturation held up against the, the many failed attempts of, of fighting this, this crazy-ass Elder Dragon, Krakatork, this most badass of foes. And I still remember when I played Episode 5, All or Nothing, which is not called War Eternal, when I first showed up in the keep and you hear the choir, the Zephyrite choir, right which is kind of the the tell like it's like oh there's like a this is a somber this is a somber thing that's gonna happen and yeah. then the trailer with the speech we're gonna save the world and kill the crystal dragon give me a break that's incredible and uh and everything that went into it um i want you to tell the story but i just want to tell you that the events of that episode some of the most affected that i felt experiencing the storytelling in guild wars 2 and that um conclu uh, concluding with the moment of uh the out the outcome of the krakatork fight which um now now uh so tell me about it how did how did this come to be Oof. all right uh <laughs> this uh episode all or nothing was um a solid year of my life. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was it was a lot to develop. Wow. Um, from from inception to uh, prototype to iteration uh, to polish, um, there were many 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 challenges. Um, when we first uh, when we first started to work on the episode, uh, we knew that this was going to be the confrontation, mm -hmm. right? Okay. Uh, we we knew that. Uh, this was the moment that we needed uh, the player to feel like uh, expectations uh, were about to be broken, right? Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, th I think a lot of people didn't expect to kill Kralkatorik uh, yes. in a Living World episode. Mm -hmm. They expected the Living World season to, like, end with some crazy thing that set up the next expansion, and then right. Kralkatorik was going to be you know, the big bad of the next X-Pack. Sure. Um, but we had different plans. Um, and, uh, and we wanted, uh, we wanted to deliver a confrontation with Krauk that was on the level of quality that you would expect from an expansion pack mm -hmm. in a living world episode. Um, we wanted to deliver it in such a way that uh, it felt dark and gritty and yet empowering and hopeful which mm -hmm. is a tall order. Um, and uh, we wanted to pull on uh, players' nostalgia uh, for Guild Wars 1 in the same episode. Mm -hmm. um, and so we sat down and we talked about a lot of different things because uh, those are a lot of tall orders. Um, and to try and fill every single one of them in the same episode, this is, this is a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But the team was absolutely ready to be up to the task um, and we got together and we decided, okay, 
Let's tackle the nostalgia part first. Where is this going to take place? Thunderhead Keep. Yeah, baby. That's the place. That's that's the you know the mission that people. I think the mission that people remember the most about GW1. Yeah. Um, it's the one that constantly gets called back to is like one of the most fun ones, one of the most difficult ones. Yeah, it was um, the, the major bottleneck if you were just uh, kind of a tuned out player because it was hard. Yeah, exactly. It was very hard. Um, and uh, and it was it was iconic mm-hmm. to GW1 prophecies, mm-hmm. um, not the least of which was because you were you were going into the land of the dwarves um, after dealing with the stone summit. Um, oh. You were now going into the iron hammer dwarves. Uh, and you were, you were, you know, going into a, an area that, uh, had a lot of mystique and history mm-hmm. to it, right? Mm-hmm. Even in GW1. Yeah. Um, and so with GW2, uh, it was, it was almost, it was almost like, I don't want to say it was an obvious choice, but when it was thrown out, almost everybody in the room was just like, yes, that, 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 that's beats out every other option we have. Yeah. Um, so we landed on that. Uh, and then we knew uh, that we needed to have the confrontation with Krokotoric. Um, and so how do you have a con- confrontation with Krokotoric and Thunderhead Keep? Um, and uh, a lot of ideas were thrown out for that. Um, you know, fighting him on top of a mountain yeah. was thrown out. Uh, doing Did you guys a- draw any lessons from like previous Elder Dragon fights and things that worked and didn't work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that we started out was um, you have to fight him directly. Okay. Uh, we, uh, with Zaitan, mm. it's a meme. You yeah. get onto a cannon, yeah. you press two, and he's dead. Um, with uh, with Mordramoth, uh, you, you fight him uh, directly uh, in the open world, which felt really good. Yeah. Um, and then you go into his mind and, and you, you fight his mind in an instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that felt a lot better, mm-hmm. um, and and so for Krakatoric, uh, we we knew that priority number one was you're going to get right up in his face, and you're going to see the scope of the dragon. That the concept art for him was that he was a mountain range. Yeah, and yeah. that's the lore is that yeah. he was a mountain range in Guild Wars One. Uh-huh. And then whenever the time between GW One and GW Two, uh, you know, went by, uh, he rose the and created came this alive. scar. Yeah, in the world. Yeah, he created the brand, which is this whole environment aesthetic, right? Um, and it's it's otherworldly, right? It's yeah. super high fantasy. Yeah. Um, and he is uh, he is the most dragony dragon that we have, uh-huh. right? Yeah, um, I buy it. And so, uh, uh, so I, you know, uh, I was put in charge of building the instance uh, where you fight Krakatoric, mm-hmm. um, and that was that was my primary responsibility. Um, I helped out with a little, uh, a couple of other little things here and there, like I did the. Um, uh, what do we call it? The Wrathbringer, um, mm. the big old chonky boy that you fight at the end of the meta. Yeah. And yeah. Um, but, uh, but by and large, my focus was on, on that final instance. Yeah. Uh, and building up to that. And how, what an instance and, it was. Um, like, um, I, I loved that you actually got to fight the dragon. The pacing was, it felt, I remember the pacing felt good. Like you were, you were moving around and doing things, but 
it didn't feel like you were shying away from actually taking on the dragon. It didn't feel like the game or the encounter was too scared to actually put the balls to the wall and be like, here's a dragon, you got a sword, figure it out. I'm really glad to hear you say that. Uh, anyway. That was, that was my intent. Uh, I, I drew on a lot of my love for... Um, for games with epic scale boss battles. Uh, okay. I know I said, um, you know, I played a lot of Final Fantasy and I played mm -hmm. a lot of Kingdom Hearts and like, that's my favorite franchise. Um, but uh, my my second actually tied for my first favorite game of all time mm. is Shadow of the Colossus. Oh yeah. Um, oh, it, yeah. Is, uh, it, it is just a, a seminal masterpiece. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is a work of art. Um, and anybody who disagrees, I, I, I'm ready to fight. Uh, and the, the feeling of being incredibly small mm -hmm. and yet having the courage to take on something enormous where yeah. you are a tick yeah. on the back of a gigantic rhinoceros, um, like, that's that's just something that again is only possible in video games, right? Mm -hmm. um, especially because like courage comes from within, and as the agent of the experience, you have to practice that in order mm -hmm. to to go forward and do it. Um, and so, yeah. And uh, one, one so component I, of that too is like over the course of the season, um, the the flavor of the masteries, right? Is this like this mm -hmm. this bond with Orin? This is one thing that's yeah. really been developing. And uh, this fight had my, one of my favorite payoffs for one of those things with the, um, the, uh, the, I don't know, it was like this, this like sonic blast thing. Yeah. And it, uh, are, are, are you going to get to that? I don't want to ruin your way of telling it. Okay. I will. Walk, uh, walk the path then, friend. Let's go. Sh sure. So uh, I, I hope not to disappoint. Um, <laughs> So, so we started off the instance uh, with, you know, that, that walk up uh, through the barracks, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Seeing, because, uh, you know, everything leading up to that instance in the episode was, yeah. how the hell are we going to do this? Right. We have armies, but like, we have, what, spears tipped with crystal? Mm -hmm. Hopefully that works. Yeah. We have no proof that it's going to work, though. So we're just, we're trying and if we fail, we fail catastrophically. And so, uh, you know, that that walk through the barracks was a moment of of seeing uh, seeing courage in other forms, mm -hmm. um, and and also seeing the humanity uh, in, yes. in the people that you've got coming behind you, right? Um, yeah. People who are scared, uh, people who are worried that they're going to die, uh, people who are worried that they're going to leave behind someone, yeah. um, and uh, but also people who are who are rallying behind you, who are who are like, yeah. I'm willing to put my life on the line. I believe in this. Mm -hmm. I believe in you. I believe in Orin, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and and backing that up with you know with Kaif being transformed uh, yeah. and showing that uh, Orin's influence uh, as an up and coming dragon um, does not necessarily mean mind control. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. uh, you know what the branded uh, mean. It doesn't. It's not like the Mordrum or it's not like the um, the Risen. Yeah. Um, it's something different. It's, it's not a, about it's domination. A, the, the I am. It's not a bomb. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. God, I love that moment. Oh, me too. Um, it's such a good, such a good cutscene. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, so that that bond with Orin, um, you know, we 
we talked about it uh, whenever we were developing um, and uh, something that I think uh, we did a good job of, of uh, showcasing through the narrative um, in that in that sequence and throughout the episode was um, not everybody is going to trust her, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody is just going to be like, yeah, no, it's totally fine. We have an up and coming elder dragon, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. has constantly been a problem for our world for the last how many years? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, implicitly trust just because you say so. No, some people are going to be scared. Some people are going to be afraid. Um, and so walking through those ranks and seeing those different perspectives was really important. Um, and then we had uh, the chef um, that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, around the same time that we were developing, um, myself and some of the other team members, we were playing uh, a lot of Monster Hunter World. And oh, we, what a fun game. We, lo- we loved the cat chef and the crazy animations yeah. that they had and like all the, the you, they just put in so much effort into it. Exactly. It's mm-hmm. so good. It's mm-hmm. so over the top. Uh, and and I, I took inspiration from that pretty, pretty heavily. Okay. Uh, and so I, I put together a, a, a char that looked a little bit like him. Uh, and um, I was like, this guy, this guy's going to be the guy who just feeds everybody and feeds them the good meals and gets them all hyped up. Because uh-huh. when you have an army, uh, the best the best way to improve morale is to have a good meal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so we needed to have that chef character. So I'm really happy that we were able to get that guy in. It's a great um, And also, fun little fact, uh, the of the guy like, you know, putting salt on the meat. Uh-huh. Uh, that was back is big back in that time. Uh, that's what inspired uh, that final step that Melitus has whenever he is cooking his meal. Uh-huh. He walks over with a great sword, and then he, you know, he has like a big old hunk of meat. He chops it up, um, and then one of the last things he does is he like whoosh, does that, and you see like a splash of of what looks like salt uh, and uh-huh. snowy salt, uh, and that was him putting salt on it. That was all inspired by Salt Bay. Uh, it's a little fun fact. We Beautiful. game developers know about memes because, uh, of course, we do. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then you know, you you walk a little bit further, you get to the place where you've got um, the uh, the forge, uh, where not the not the dragon forge, um, mm-hmm. but the uh, the place where you've got people making weapons and armor for uh, the the sub ranks, right? Yeah. Um, and they mention they're like we don't have the same materials that you have for the dragon uh, blood weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have scraps, we have the dust, um, but we can give you some maybe reinforcement uh, through that. And so the idea of like having little optional buffs to like improve your power level and give you a little bit more of an edge in the coming battle came about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that speech happened. Um, and uh and Connor Fallon helped me out a lot. Connor Fallon is one of our um, incredibly talented uh, narrative designers, mm-hmm. um, and he leads the the story team. and um, And he had some extra time towards the end of development to help me really bring that uh, that scene to life by having people come in from the back as you're speaking and kind of fill out the ranks and make yeah. it really feel like you're talking, you're speaking, and you're commanding attention, and people are noticing and they're coming in, and then yeah, yeah. Um, and that was just, that was such a good moment. Um, and, and telling the initial plan by using the map system, something that we had previously done by using the, um, the scouts, uh, out in the world, that was a lot of fun. Um, mm-hmm. cause that was just one of those crazy ideas of like, 
we need we need a visual representa representation of the map. And one of the ideas floated was like, what if we have like a holographic map in the middle with like all these moving pieces and stuff? Yeah, and that, uh, that would be really cool. And it's also very expensive. Uh -huh. A lot of game development is uh, we only have so much budget, so we need to be very judicial about where we spend it. Yes. Um, so uh, in place of something that was super bespoke, uh, we decided to reuse that system, um, which has some fun little hardcore uh, or hard coded limitations, um, mm -hmm. like the time between going from point to point right. uh, is Pace very, it. very specific. Huh. Uh, and, uh, and that was a, a bit of a, a restriction we had to work around. But I think it worked out. I think it was fun. Yeah. Um, and then you come out of that map and, and you're like, I know this is going to be hard, but we got to do it. Uh, and that's just, I know I'm kind of just like going point to point on what that instance is, but it's, I just I have so much love for this. You loved it though. I can hear yeah. that. Yeah. Like this was really important for you to get right. It was, it was a year of my life, man. Uh, and I, I poured myself into it. Um, but anyway. After that, you have your walk up to uh, your first uh, your first uh, little alcove in the amphitheater. Mm -hmm. Before I go too much further, I want to talk a little bit about the amphitheater because okay. um, the uh, the reason why we chose to fight Kralkatoric in the amphitheater um, was because uh, again, um, game development is very expensive, and we were in the middle of building Kralkatoric, and uh, we knew that the head and the neck of Kralkatoric were going to be finished um, or could be finished before the entire model. Um, mm -hmm. And we could wait for the entire model to be finished and delay the release by an X number of months, or we could get crafty <laughs> and uh -huh. we could just use the head and the neck. So we, um, it took a lot of uh, brainstorming, getting into the room uh, with uh, our lead designers, um, with the narrative folks, uh, and throwing around ideas um, of like, why is he in this in this cavern? Yeah. Um, do you lure him here? You gotta really make it uh, convincing. Right, exactly, because you gotta earn it. Oh, right? look, I wanna kill yeah, a dragon, and there's a dragon it. here. This is great. Like, it shouldn't feel yeah. like, like fun. It shouldn't feel lucky. It should feel like... You earn this. Terrifying. You work towards it. And yeah, like, yeah. like, are, are we really sure we want to do this? Like, yeah. Anyway, uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so there were a lot of ideas thrown around. One of the big things, um, and, and this kind of leads into that that crystal boom, uh, is uh, we we talked about okay, we've got the we've got the dragon's blood weapons, but they're like toothpicks, right? <laughs> so like. How do you fight a dragon that's that big? <laughs> Even if you've got magical weapons, like is a little you got the same old arms out of reach to believe that like your little tiny sword is gonna do so much damage just because it's made of some magical material, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so, so we like we tossed around a couple of ideas. One of the ideas we tossed around was like, um, you know, what if we had a gigantic uh, dragon's blood? um spear mounted on the wall hmm. that whenever he entered the room it like came down and poof, just like crushed into his neck and mm -hmm. he had blood spurting out and everything and like that held him there um yeah. and uh and we were like that's cool but visceral and also wouldn't he just be like and then just break it off right yeah uh and and you know through the conversation and the, and the ideation uh, and the back and forth um I'm a musician, 
Uh, oh, and okay. uh, one of the one of the things I find fascinating about um, crystals is that they have musical properties, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they resonate uh, mm-hmm. with certain tones, mm-hmm. right? Um, and here we have an elder dragon made of crystal. Right. Uh, so what if the elder dragon made of crystal resonated with a particular tone? And if you know anything about, uh, you know, what you can do with resonation and like uh, crystal wine glasses is if you resonate with a, the right frequency, the right volume, mm-hmm. um, you can shatter the wine glass. Um, it's not as dramatic as a lot of people will, you know, like post videos of, but it's possible to do some like cracks and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it'll make them, uh, it, it'll make them very vulnerable uh, or it'll make crocotoric vulnerable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, and so the idea was born of like, what if we had crystals that were like tuning forks that uh-huh. were specifically crafted for the frequencies that Krakatoric was vulnerable to? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and when that idea like came out, the everybody in the room was just like, yes <laughs> it makes sense uh and then from there it was like all right so we got the zephyrites the zephyrites are known for singing yes right? so what if we what if we have a zephyrite choir that is backing this super boom that you are like firing off with your yes. crystal and let's make this a musical moment uh-huh. where we have your final boss fight uh, with this, you know, with Krakatoric, we mm-hmm. have this confrontation mm-hmm. uh, be backed by in-game diegetic music uh-huh. uh, that you see the source of and that you are the agent of, of making it happen. Uh, and it was, it was such such a cool uh, cool thing to see everything kind of fall into place yeah. Uh, yeah. once that idea came yeah. about. Um, and we got to work with building that. And, um, and so that's why it was an amphitheater because we were like, well, you know, uh, what kind of environment is this going to work well in? Mm-hmm. Um, a cave uh, is is good enough, right? Because mm-hmm. caves echo and, and they have a lot of good resonance. Um, but they're not built for sound resonance. They're not mm-hmm. built to get the best experience musically. Amphitheaters and theaters in general are specifically architecturally designed to give you the best musical experience, mm-hmm. right? So what if the dwarves, knowing this secret, created an amphitheater and everybody was like, this seems gratuitous. Why do you have a gigantic cavern of amphitheaters? But, you know, prophecy of Glint. Uh, it was known. They, they expected yeah. it was yeah. known. That's right. So, so yeah, so that all came together. Uh, and uh, what, what a moment. Um, Yes, I was working. I was working really, uh, really closely with uh, McLean Deemer on the uh, the action of actually like firing uh, the the tuning fork. Yeah, um, because you know when we when we first prototyped it out, it was just like a, a button click, and it was like boom, right? And that's yeah. cool, but like it needs buildup. It needs it needs uh, like a, a sense of momentum. Yeah, the- of anticipation. Right, Bam. like banging a gong. Right, you don't mm-hmm. just like. I mean, you can. You can do 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 do. But, bam! Wow, yeah. that's what everybody thinks about, right? So, so we worked together really closely on that, um, and using some really cool uh, techniques with our audio engineers um, and audio designers, uh, we 
synced up that that cast of pulling back all of the energy and readying, mm-hmm. uh, readying it to let loose. You can hear the choir in the background like swell at oh. the same time, and it's all timed together. And it's what boom, and then Dude. right as that first blast goes off, we kick in the music, and it just seamlessly goes yes. into like, all right, now you're fighting Krakatoric. Uh, and then we didn't fucking stop there because we're crazy people. We're madmen. Uh, and uh, we had the the dragon like go and rampage across the arena and then slam into the side of the arena. Uh, the idea was like, okay, well, we got to show that he's affected and we only have his yeah. head and neck. So how do we do that? Uh-huh. And that was, you know, let's make him writhe around. And because he's so big and he has so much mass, um, I looked back to uh, and pulled on inspiration from games like God of War, mm. um, where you're fighting creatures that are incredible sizes, um, and and they have so much mass uh, and and, uh, and weight built into their animations mm-hmm. and the effects that they have mm-hmm. on the environment. Um, and so the idea was like, all right, well, when he does that, what if he crashes into the wall mm-hmm. and breaks it and yeah. just like shatters it? million pieces like out of course just Uh, from writhing around right exactly not Um, trying to break it just doing his thing yeah and it and it like it makes sense that's Mm -hmm. like physics wise that would happen right yeah um and so and so uh i i threw the idea by james barwick uh who was like i've been playing around with some new tech and i think i could do this thing uh and because it originally it was one of those things where there are ideas that people can have in game development where when they bring them up, people just look at them and they're like, no, uh, that's <laughs> what, how, I don't even know how we would ever, how'd you get that idea? That. <laughs> right. Uh, like there, there's just some things. Cause we all want to do crazy epic, you know, yeah. experiences, mm-hmm. right. We want to build the impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the balance is knowing your limitations and, and knowing uh, when you can push and when you can experiment and, and try to build new things using new tech mm-hmm. um, and when you need to hold yourself back and build with what you know so that mm-hmm. you can put out content on time. Um, and I was lucky enough that the team behind me on uh, on the instance for um, episode five was uh, willing to put up with my crazy antics. Uh, and All or nothing, just, just like the name. Exactly. Uh, that was actually originally the name uh, that I wanted to give the instance, um, mm. and we put it on the, the episode, and then mm-hmm. put Crystal Dragon to uh, to the instance. But anyway, um, so yeah, so so James put up with me, and he humored me, and uh, and he created this really amazing system using some new tech mm-hmm. uh, that allowed us to to um, you know take the model and and actually run a physics simulation of what it would look like if he you know banged into the wall like this uh-huh. uh, and then what it would do to the the mesh of the wall um, and then we did it and it was nuts it was crazy we, we, uh-huh. we did it we did it uh, and and that just once those pieces fell into place from there it was okay we have everything we need um, now we gotta now we gotta build this through line out uh-huh. right we gotta uh-huh. figure out the pacing from point A to point B to C to D to E to F final um, and uh, and it was arduous. Um, hmm. It was it was really taxing. Um, it was a, it was a very very hard time. But it was I think it was absolutely worth it. And I have a complicated relationship with it because um, 
you know, we, we put in so much love and effort uh, for such a long period of time that as a designer, once you, once you've played through your content as you're developing it uh, over and over and over and over and over, it lacks all of the impact that right. you get from a first time experience. You lose that, uh, that fresh perspective because you're too far. Exactly. In and you start to see all the flaws. Mm -hmm. It's, it's like painting, right? You see every stroke, you mm -hmm. see every decision that you made that you wish you had made differently. Um, you see the cracks uh, that otherwise would be concealed because people just aren't looking for them. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there was a time, you know, towards the end of that development before we released where uh, I was tuning and bug fixing uh, and, and testing all of the, the new interactions um, that we had. And I legitimately was just like, this sucks. I, mm -hmm. I could have done so much better. I wish I would have done so much better. And I was getting in my own head about it. Um, and uh, how do you deal with that? Syndrome. How do you get past that? Uh, it's not easy. Um, that is imposter syndrome at its worst. Uh, and it takes support from your friends, from your family, um, mm -hmm. from the, the people that you know and love at your studio. Um, it takes a lot of, uh, of self-care, um, yeah. of, of introspection uh, and mindfulness. Um, it is not easy. Uh, and it's something that I think every developer worth their salt uh, deals with mm -hmm. um, on, a, on a near constant basis because mm -hmm. um, we are so familiar with these things and the process of developing them takes so much time right. um, that uh, it's, you know, it's, it's just natural to fall mm -hmm. into that state. Mm -hmm. um, if, someone, if someone out there has the answer and has like, found a way to just get around it, please reach out, tell me, tell the world, you will win the Nobel Prize. Because <laughs> it's just, it's something that creative, creative developers deal with all the time. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've dealt with imposter syndrome. All the damn time, my friend. As we're sitting how, here right now. <laughs> how do you deal with it? By the way, you're doing a great job. Thank you. How do I deal with it? Um, sometimes I look back at my old work. And it helps me remember how far I've come. Mm -hmm. uh, like you said, connecting with my support system, people who know me, that's a big part of it. Getting other perspectives, getting out in nature, just experiencing yeah. the, the bigness of the world um, and not feeling like your, your part in it is that important. It's just kind of a, uh, like, again, it's all about perspective. Um, I think that like, for me, imposter syndrome can be an like a almost like a like an incorrect assessment of my own importance. Like, yeah, I'm an imposter, but what am I trying to do? Is it really that important? Is it really a world-ending thing? What's the actual whatever? And man, if you look back at it, and if I if I look back at it really, and maybe you can relate to this too, like every step I've made along the way has come at at the cost of five or six stumbles. Like that's just the way, that's just the way we work. And you don't get to progress without stumbling. It's not the way shit works. We all got to look kindly on ourselves. And it's hard to, it's hard to remember mid stumble that this is the way that you move forward. But that, that kind of perspective for me is one of the things that, that does it, that helps me out. Absolutely. Um, 
Seriously, though, I, I, I got to say, like, one of, the, one of the things that I think as a society we can get better at whenever it comes to tackling imposter syndrome, mm. because it's so prevalent and so many of us experience it, um, we should just be kinder to each other. Yeah. Um, and, and I would love to see us move towards a place where um, positive feedback is given just as often, if not more, than uh, constructive feedback, right? Yeah. Um, cause it's, it's important. It's so important. You mean positive versus uh, to, negative? Uh, well, I, I say constructive, but yeah, negative feedback. I, so negative is like, you suck, right? Uh, constructive is like, yeah. you, you know, made a mistake here. You can do better. Right. Okay. But okay. positive feedback is more along the lines of like, yeah, you're doing good. You're doing great. I really yeah. like this. Good job. X, Y, and Z. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I see what you did there. That um, was cool. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. so I think, you know, Okay, I get it. I get it. So, so the first thing, time when you were saying, I, I want to break it down for one second. You were saying sure, positive sure. versus constructive, and I initially, for me, constructive carries a positive connotation with it. But I think your clarification is actually very, very important and very wise. To, to, that that sometimes constructive feedback is cleverly disguised or artfully delivered negative feedback, right. um, and um, or it can be taken as such. E yeah, easily. Well, it's communication is hard, dude. Yeah, I think it's really hard. And uh, anyway, I just wanted to point out my mistake and shine a light on what you were you were tr to, trying to differentiate from. I think it's really wise. Thanks. Yeah, uh, it's it, it is something that I, I try to champion um, as much as possible um, in game design and just in game development in general. Is um, you know knowing knowing the nuances of communicating feedback. Um, I actually, you can't see it because my camera sucks and there's a huge light there. Okay. But I have a feedback cheat sheet on my wall that I like use as a touchstone. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and what's it say? So it, it, uh, a lot of things. Um, but uh, let's see, what can I say? That would be a good uh, da, 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 da. focus on context and goals. Positive feedback is often and specific. Um, if you ask specific. for feedback, then follow through uh, and teach them how to fish. Mm, right. Those are like the four big tenants. There's a lot of other stuff on there. Um, That's good stuff. Did you make? Did you write that yourself, or did you take that from somewhere? No, I, I had a I had a coworker of mine uh, while I was driving an initiative for like doing a, a feedback class. Uh -huh. um, they sent me that as a resource. They were like, yeah, you know, the last place I worked had this uh, sheet. I'm just going to share it with you and you can steal it. And I'm like, yeah, cool. Uh, nice, and it's nice. great. Uh, it's a good touchstone. Yeah, um, good. And all of us deal with it, right? So it's so important. It's so important for us to, as a society, uh, to feel more comfortable, and it's hard, but to feel more comfortable with appreciating uh, people and, and telling them how much you appreciate them and what they do. Um, because affirmation and validation are some of the most powerful tools uh, towards encouraging people to continue doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And without that, um, it's really, really easy to fall into the mindset uh, that what you're doing isn't good enough. Right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, absolutely. So that speaks right right to my heart too. That's a big that's a big part of the reason I I do this because I I fundamentally believe that, like you said, context. You and I are getting to step through so much context about how this how this content arrived, context that for the people might not get to hear otherwise. Get to know you as a person. Um, you know, one of my 
I don't, I don't know it's a mission, but like one of like the <laughs> the idea of of the uh, the clam that forms the the pearl from an, uh, a grain of sand that's agitated. I feel like my agitating grain of sand is like the way we talk to each other about games. Yeah. Um, especially game communities interacting with developers, but also game communities acting on themselves too. There's that part of it too. And also I just know it's really hard as someone who who's works, works in game dev because your words represent a company. And boy, that's a lot of pressure. People don't understand or respect. Yeah, and so it's, it's a lot. I try to help build those bridges. I appreciate the work that you do. Uh, it is something that uh, I think has tremendous value. So keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. And you sure. too. And I want to give you a chance to continue either to jump back into all or nothing, or is there, is there more you want to say about this piece? Um, we, can, we can jump back into all or nothing. Uh, that was a great tangent, by the way. I loved it. Yeah, yeah, that was lovely. <laughs> um, Okay, so uh, the the last thing that I think we can really touch on for all or nothing um, is <laughs> probably what ended up taking up the most of my time. And the thing that, speaking of imposter syndrome and feeling like this is just bad, um, was the core of that. And that is the ending sequence. Right. Um, the story of that uh, is very... Uh, well, I'll just tell it and, and I'll leave it for you to decide what it is. Okay. Uh, so, um, we knew that, uh, that we needed to have an emotional traumatic moment at the end of this episode. Yes. Um, but we did not want to play our hand. We wanted it to be a surprise as much as possible. Um, we wanted you to not see it coming. Mm -hmm. uh, and for it to be a legitimate gut punch, right? Mm -hmm. um, for, uh, are you a Marvel fan? I'm aware of it. I wouldn't call myself a fan. Okay. Um, well, there goes that. Well, what but, are you referring to? I've <laughs> seen a lot of it, man. Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, spoilers for uh, Infinity War. Um, yes, I've seen Infinity War and the following. Okay, okay. So uh, the end of Infinity War, um, is not what audiences really expected. Yes. Yes. And uh, and it was if I remember seeing it on opening night and it was dead silent. Oh, when man. it happened, right? And I remember I remember getting the feeling of like this is what I want from mm. the experience that we're going to have at the end of this episode. This is the feeling. What I'm feeling right now, I want to impart onto these other people, onto the players that are, are going to go through this experience blind and for the first time. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And it would, it's, it's powerful, right, to be able to pull on it. And it's very hard. Uh, you yeah, have to how build. do you do that? Well, it's, it's something that I, I think requires years of investment because um, mm -hmm. you need players to be invested. You need mm -hmm. players to be, uh, you need the consumers to be um, invested in the characters, uh, they need to care about the stakes of the world. They need to feel like the stakes are real. They need to um, they need to expect victory, but at a cost. But they don't really know exactly what cost, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, they need to feel the tension. They need to feel that uh, that this is something that has been building up over time for a long period of time, and it's it's a climax, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's the end of a saga, which is exactly what Infinity War and Endgame end up doing, right? Yeah. 
Um, and, uh, and with uh, the Crystal Dragon instance, um, this was a story that we had been telling since uh, Heart of Thorns, mm-hmm. uh, since before Heart of Thorns, if you count carrying around Orin as an egg in season two, right. um, or even before that, if you count uh, Scarlet Briar um, drilling into the ley lines and awakening up Marchmoth. Right. Um, like all of this is building up to this, you know, this, the, the um, scion and champion, the, the prophecy mm-hmm. that Glenn had going back as far as Guild Wars 1. So we had that epic tale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And we had that, that groundwork laid. Um, and we needed, uh, we needed to present that ending, uh, present the, the, the climactic, traumatic moment uh, in such a way that um, we, for lack of a better term, we couldn't screw it up. We had one chance, right? Mm-hmm. You can't do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we sat and ideated on how to do it, uh, for many moons and we got together as a group and we talked about, okay, it's going to be a cinematic, mm-hmm. um, you know, how are we going to, you know, how are we going to show these shots? Um, and it was, it was a tall and daunting order and it was going to be uh, a huge lift on our cinematics team. Yeah. And that's the first thing um, you think about, a big moment like this, a major story beat. Surely, if there's going to be a cinematic somewhere, it has to be this. Right, exactly. It's kind of like the default, right? Yeah. But um, I, I felt very strongly, and some other people on the team felt very strongly, that um, with games as a medium, you have rare opportunities to, uh, to tell these kinds of moments through gameplay give Mm -hmm. player the agency to experience these kinds of moments on their own time through their own volition Mm -hmm. um and and not just be watching a movie but be an extension of what they do for hundreds of hours Mm -hmm. which is controlling their character and living the moment Mm -hmm. right and so um one weekend uh, after I had pitched the idea to the narrative team about, um, you know, hey, I think this could be an endgame moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I strongly believe that it's going to land a lot better um, and that it has the potential to be one of the most emotional moments that we've ever done. Mm-hmm. Um, I came in and I did some, uh, some prototyping work uh, and I threw together a very quick and dirty version of it. Um, and, uh, I got the, the, um, narrative director, um, and the lead, uh, the lead writer, um, mm-hmm. and a bunch of the narrative designers over at my desk, uh, the following week. Um, and I, I just, I showed it to them, the quick and dirty version. Mm-hmm. Um, and I walked through it, uh, and I told them like my vision of what I was going to do with it. Um, and, what was uh, that vision? Like, 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 let's let, tell me about this a little so, bit. Like I, I've seen this, so, you've seen it, but not everyone who's, who's hearing this might've seen it. Sure, sure. Uh, so, you know, the, the end of the, the encounter with Krakatoric is you think you've won. Right. Um, you, you have, you have, he has blasted you with all of his power. Yeah. And Orin has shielded you from the blast. And with him exhausted, mm-hmm. he falls to the ground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and you run up to his eyeball, where he is the most vulnerable, um, at least from where you can get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you hack at it. Uh, and you you bring him down, and then he falls a little bit further, and uh, you haven't killed him yet, but you can still do it. You gotta yeah. go. Constant you gotta jump staggering. Him. 
He's taking hit after hit. Exactly. It, it is building that tension. It is not just like one yeah. off. It is just ratcheting you know, up moment after moment. I've been I've been watching a lot of I've been getting back into baseball recently. And there's this there's a stat thing that, that they do where each play they change the percentage chance each team will win based on the current state of the game and the score and things like that. And like to me, that that part of 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 the instance, it, it feels like your chance of winning is climbing, is climbing, yeah, right. It's climbing, yeah, yeah. it's going up and up and up and up, and then just like like, and then Kralkatorik fucking hits a bases loaded home run in the bottom of the ninth. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. He comes out of fucking nowhere. Yeah, you think you've won. Yeah, you you deal that final blow. You hear Timey say he's gonna drop, and then the screen goes black, and you wake up and he is presumably dead on the floor. Uh huh. And you're waking up and you see Orene and she looks at you, and then there's that moment where his eyes just opens, and you are now at ground level with an elder dragon looking you straight in the face, like. Uh, okay, what's yeah. what's about to happen? And with the last of his strength, he pulls back pulls and he back just, and he turns he, on you. He, that moment when he's turning on you, I'm like, yeah. holy shit, holy shit. Yeah. He throughout the instance, one of the things that that we tried really, really hard um, to do. Uh, I'm going to walk back a little bit so we can build okay. back up to this. Okay. Um, is uh, is the reason why you get Krokatoric in here is because you send Orin. Uh, to to bait him, right? right? To to get him to follow her in, and uh, the way that we achieved that was the um, the rig, the the model uh, mm-hmm. of Krakatorik's head and neck um, also has Orin built into it, so oh. that we were able to build those animations where Orin is like flying around him and pelting him and keeping oh. his attention, because the whole goal is. Orin needs to keep his attention for as long as possible while we activate these these traps that uh-huh. we have set, uh-huh. uh, and and we can weaken him down. And then at that last step, um, you know, he that's the first time where he's like, "Okay, I see what's going on here," and he focuses his attention on you and he blasts you and Orin shields you, right? And yeah. then in that moment at the end, uh, you know, like you said, when he looks at you. That's that's intentional. That's supposed to be a he is done with your shit. <laughs> you were a fly that was bothering him, and now you've almost killed him. Yeah. And he's tired of you. Yeah. And so he powers up everything that he has to yeah. blast at you. And then Orion jumps in front and saves you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get blasted back. Uh, and you hear that sickening crunch of your body hitting the wall, mm-hmm. uh, and you black out, right? Uh, and then from there, um, that is that's where the in-game sequence uh, begins, and we yeah. call it um, a we call it a cine event um, okay. and not a cinematic, because the idea is that it's uh, it's an in-game cinematic experience yeah. Yeah. for the player as agency. Um, and so, you know, so, you wake up. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Now- before you step me through what actually what what, what it actually is, what the actual um, sin event is, tell me about the moment you were showing um, you were showing this mock up to the folks from narrative because I heard this story from Tom's perspective a few weeks ago, and I really, really I, yeah yeah because and and his I mean he gave me his take which basically was Cameron had this crazy idea and we're like yeah okay you know prototyping's easy so 
you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? You waste a little bit of time. Might as well try it. And then as soon as he saw, he was like, yes. Is that what you saw from him? Is that what you saw from those folks? What was that moment like? Uh, I, I experienced approval. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I was, I was a little kind of, I was ecstatic, uh, that, that they were like, yes, this is the direction. There was still some hesitance, right? Mm. Because it's not something that we often do. Kind of um, new, kind of different. And, 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 and there's, there's fear, uh, there's fear of, of, uh, again, this is something we can't do twice. Right. So we mm. got to be really, really confident that what we, put out there the way that we execute this idea mm-hmm. is the way that we can execute it in the best way possible right. with the resources we have. Right. Um, and so um, not everybody agreed immediately, right. There was still some discourse. There was some back and forth. And we talked at my desk about, um, about the pros and the cons. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, and we, we ended that conversation with, um, you know, people feeling good about it and people mm-hmm. feeling like, okay. Yes, the the idea here, the vision that I that I gave them was like because again it was super quick and dirty. Was um, uh, the player has just suffered um, one of the most devastating blows they've ever been dealt, mm-hmm. short of being killed by Balthazar yeah. in Path of Fire. Uh, and, but they just got thrown across the the cavern, landing in you know a, a, a huge pile of rock and crystal, uh, while being blasted by the latent energy of one of the most powerful beings in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are a flea as compared to the size of this dragon. So it doesn't matter how powerful the commander is; mm-hmm. um, they're hurt. And that's something that was really, really important um, that we show, regardless of how you know we we show the the sequence in game or in cinematic, is that yeah. the player is is hurt. Yeah. And my my first thing was, uh, if we do this in game, I'm gonna remove your UI. Uh-huh. I'm gonna pull in the visibility of your screen. Uh-huh. I'm gonna put you into a state where you are limping uh, and you can barely walk. You will not be able to dodge. Mm-hmm. You can. Uh, you, you just have to like slowly make your way through the wreckage of this event. Mm-hmm. Um, and the important part of that was, you know, on the level design as well, was getting the right pacing, the right time mm-hmm. uh, and distance to allow for the the feeling of dread to set in. Okay. Right. Uh, because the player being in control uh, means that they can stop and look around at any point in time. Uh Right. Uh Um, And I wanted to give them the opportunity to do that. Uh, And so making it too short um, implies to the player that, you know, there's the finish line, you should go for it and don't stop. Right. Uh Uh Making it too long might wear out the welcome of the, of the moment. Yeah. Uh, and so there was, there was a lot of fine tuning of, you know, oh. let's make this a little bit shorter. Let's make this a little bit longer. Um, let's have some play tests and see what people feel. Interesting. Um, and one of the things uh, that, that we found was um, distance was one factor, but pacing through moments, little micro moments mm-hmm. uh, as you walk forward towards the end uh, was incredibly important as well. Mm-hmm. And when I say micro moments, I mean, um, there's a little ledge uh, that's about a third of the way through the walk mm-hmm. uh, that 
you normally would just be able to walk over and you'd be fine, right? But in the state that you're in, when you cross that threshold and drop to the floor of that ledge, Mm -hmm. your character is so weak that they fall to their knees and they stumble and then they have to pull themselves back up. And that builds that drama, right? Um, and that and that builds that sense of, yeah, this is serious. Something bad happened. It sells it. Uh, and then uh, and then there's the, the crying uh, that starts out really distorted uh, as you're further mm-hmm. back, that as you move up towards the end, you hear it becoming a little bit more clear. You see Zephira after turning a corner. Sight mm-hmm. lines are really important whenever you're trying to to get the the drama of these moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in the level design, we have blockers uh, to keep you from looking around and seeing what's ahead. Sure. Um, and they're in, they're intentionally placed. And one of the ones that uh, we put in at first was to keep you from seeing that Zephira is on her knees um, okay. towards the end of the path, right? And so. You turn that corner, getting past that sight line, and Zephira's line plays. Um, and it's been enough time that uh, the player has been walking that something feels like it should happen, right? Mm-hmm. And so Zephira's line adds another anchor point. Uh, mm-hmm. It kind of resets the feeling of how long this experience is because it's something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you hear that line, you hear her um, saying how much that she she believed in the prophecy and it was supposed to work and it didn't. Right. And it starts to set in like, oh, we didn't we didn't win. Yeah. We, no, we won. We won. There's still an opportunity for the player to be like, no, 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 no. This is fine. Yeah. Maybe a lot of damage. Maybe someone else died. Right. Yeah. But like we still killed Krakatoric. Right. Um, and uh, and then you keep going and Bram comes out and Bram is is the moment. He's the catalyst for the player to have to come to terms with the fact that what they're about to see is their worst fear, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Bram, Bram comes up to you and, and just says, Commander. Mm-hmm. And then the player character responds with, where is she? And that's the moment that the, the player and the player character both know now that what they're, what they're stepping into is, is not good. Yeah. Um, and and he doesn't, he last, doesn't answer. I like that moment right. where Bram just stays silent. He doesn't respond. He like he, he can't find the words. Exactly. He's traumatized. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and and, uh, and so there's so much character built into that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much emotion in the delivery that the that the voice actors gave, um, and we got a lot of really we got a great uh, animation support um, uh, working with Dahi Im uh, to to get the player character rigs to have that, uh, that animation state where they're kind of holding their side and moving forward. And then yeah. also doing that, uh, with, um, with Bram as well. Um, and, uh, and then you turn the corner and your worst fears are true. Mm-hmm. Orion is dead. Uh, she is, uh, just pierced through multiple places with stalactites of brand. Um, or stalagmites a brand rather, yeah. uh, and uh, and you see Tiny crying, um, and you you see Kaith holding the flower, um, and it you know it bursts uh, into just dust, and right. then she falls to her knees, right. uh, and then um, the question uh, of you know what do we do now uh, is asked, uh, and uh, and I. 
working with, um, uh, I'm going to butcher her last name, uh, Samantha W. Um, mm -hmm. Working with Samantha uh, on the, the script, one of the big things that we really, really believed needed to happen was um, the screen needed to go to black before the last line played. Um, to really sell that this was a, a moment of desperation, loss of hope, there is no way out. This is the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. The credits roll, so to speak, in that mm -hmm. what's going to happen, black screen, I don't know. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you, you leave the instance, um, and the quest complete thing pops up, and, and you're left with questions of what's going to happen next? Like, yeah. Holy crap. Um, isn't, th isn't there a line in there about being with your loved ones or something like that? Am I remembering that right? Um, I want to say that's in the follow-up uh, when at, you're at doing the, start of the it. walk. Yeah, right. Yeah. right. Okay. That, that sounds right. That sounds right. So, so I know that you had mentioned, you know, like walk through the vision uh, before walking through the, um, the, the final product. This was one of those rare moments where, um, through force of will uh, and through a lot of perseverance, um, the vision and the final product were nearly one for one. Hmm. Uh, and, and the final product uh, was only elevated by additional support with more animation, with more effects like that flower dissipating into thin air um, and, and just like more fine tuning of, of things like character move speed uh, and the the length of the the level design, um, the core idea and the script that we had to work with, um, I don't think changed uh, much at all after we had pitched this idea and began began working on it. Maybe a, a line or two here or there. I remember Gorik uh, at one point had a role where he might have found the commander mm. um, in the rubble, uh, but we we went that was super early on, yeah, um, and we changed that. Uh, before we even like started working on the script, because um, that was just me being like, I'm gonna throw a line in here where like Gorik's like, ah, the commander's over here. And terrible design writing, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it was one of those rare moments where everybody was on board with the vision, um, and we all just trucked forward as a group. Yeah, uh, and we did it. And it was great. Talk talking to Tom, um, Tom Abernathy, for folks who don't know, studio narrative director. Um, one of the, th the things that he talked about is how um, there was uncertainty about about the future state of Guild Wars 2 after Season 4 and a real effort by everyone to make whatever Season 4 ended up being the best it could be. And what you're describing really reinforces that. It really reinforces... Like, we know... Like, I think I've heard somewhere that a Living World episode can take about six months to make on average. I don't know if that's true. Does that sound about right? Do you happen to know? Roughly, yeah. And for this... To a little have more, take, a little less, depending on it. Yeah, obviously it varies. Makes sense. But to spend a whole year on this, and I I mean, the level of quality, the payoff is, is I think, apparent. Um, and so part of me loves the experience as a, as a player of going through this, of being in this story, of experiencing this incredible moment and the battle before it. And um, that for me, that really like 
the whole walk through before the before the battle the let, let let's get motivated to do this let's do this we're gonna do this oh god can we do this and then like the the game on moment when you, when you do the special uh ability that has the, the choir swell the oh uh, and then and then the drums go bump dum dum right right into that yeah. the way that's yeah. synced up that moment is like oh shit game face on let's go we're gonna do this like yeah. we're in it like, oh my it's god it's it hype. is so hype and the whole um arc of that experience um I, it's i just think it's incredible man and so like i mentioned part of me like the gamer is like i'm I'm in that moment like i'm totally in tyria while that's happening um but another part of me uh talking to you and talking to tom and everyone else who is involved i'm hearing another arc of all or nothing that i think also reads very loud um and i don't know if you have anything else you want to say about all or nothing but i know that for you you had your own flower turning to dust in your hands moment just a month after this episode came out yeah um yeah uh you're you're right everything everything that you said about the uh the correlation between the name all or nothing and the story of the development uh, and the story of what was happening in the studio, mm-hmm. um, the team, the team did truly believe that we needed to, we needed to prove that we were still cream of the crop, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That we were still able to deliver uh, true, exciting AAA experiences, uh, and that we were, we were still in the game, in the contenders for best MMOs uh, on the market. Right, yeah. best games on the market. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, there is there is absolutely a reason why we called it all or nothing. Um, at least that's that's why I called my instance all or nothing at the beginning. Yeah, uh, that's and, how it felt uh, to you. That's how it felt to a lot of people who were working on it. It sounds like yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what happens in game development, right? Uh, is um, the best work. Uh, not saying that what we did was the best work of, of all time, but the best work that uh, comes out of games comes from a place of, of intimacy um, where you can tell through the content uh, what the developers were feeling um, and what kind of experience that they might have been having at the same time. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. You can expand <laughs> on that if you want or not if you don't. I'll leave it up to you. Uh, well... So you mentioned the the flowers crumbling uh, in the hands moment. Um, yeah, uh, it's not it's not a secret. Uh, but uh, shortly after that episode released, uh, ArenaNet um, restructured uh, and uh, laid off uh, a number of its workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I won't get into the reasons why. Um, but, uh, a lot of people were chosen, um, Mm -hmm. to, to be laid off, uh, and I was one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and it created a lot of conflicting feelings, um, Mm -hmm. because, uh, it was coming off the heels of all or nothing. Um, the release that I had had put in at great cost. Yeah. At great cost. Uh, I had invested, uh, so many people had invested um, so much of their life, their time, their, their efforts uh, into 
making that experience. Uh, and uh, it, we couldn't help but feel that it was, um, that it was a, a bit, I don't want to sound too negative here, but um, we didn't quite understand why. Yeah. It's a we layoff. Yeah. Yeah. You're allowed oftentimes, to sound negative, man. Oftentimes, uh, yeah, but, I, you know, I'm back at the studio and, and uh, oh, I don't come want on. anybody you, you to You spoiled take... it. You spoiled it. Come on. You had to walk through it step by step. Sorry, go on. Uh, sure, sure. But, um, no, I, I mean, it, yeah, personally, it did feel like a slap in the face, right? Yeah. Um, I, I know that it wasn't, uh, I know that it wasn't personal mm-hmm. um, in that way. Uh, I know that it was not because of the quality of my work. Um, but there is damage. There is psychological damage that happens uh, to people whenever they are laid off. Um, yes. They feel inadequate and they feel like it was their fault. They could have done something better in some way. And oftentimes you're not given a reason. So yeah. uh for some people, myself included, um, when we are faced with the reality that something went wrong and that it was possibly our fault, but that we don't know what it was, mm-hmm. uh, we start to think about everything that mm-hmm. we have done um, and start to try and put together the pieces of what happened. Uh, what did hypothesis. I do wrong? Right, exactly. Right. Um, and because you don't have any proof, uh, you don't have anybody to tell you, yep, that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to you have to be careful uh, to not go too far down that road. Um, and I won't lie. Uh, I went too far down that road and I began to second guess literally every single decision that I had ever made because sure. I wasn't sure. Um, uh, and that's that's how anxiety works, right? Um, it is a seed that is planted that grows, mm-hmm. and if not properly mm-hmm. managed, if not properly pruned, um, it will just take over. Um, yeah. And there, uh, after the layoffs, like it, it was hard. It, yeah. was, it was incredibly difficult. What was um, your What was your day like the day you found out? Oh, I sobbed my eyes out. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, I said goodbye to people who I consider to be my family. Um, I said yeah. goodbye to the studio who, like, I considered that place to be my home. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, part of leaving Florida was uh, leaving behind a life. Um, and uh, part of coming out here and, uh, and putting myself out here to work in the games industry was... Um, starting over, pressing hard reset, yeah. right? Um, and uh, I just had no idea what I was going to do. No idea. I didn't have a, a second plan, mm-hmm. a backup plan. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there are no other studios that I look to that I want to work for uh, as much as ArenaNet. And that's not me being, being a shill. That's just it's how I feel. That's right? what's in you. There are, there are some great studios out there that, you know, I'd be happy to work for. Sure. But ArenaNet's always been the goal and the mm-hmm. top um, for a number of reasons. And uh, so, yeah, it was devastating, man. It was, it was horrible, yeah. horrible, horrible. Um, there's a picture. 
luckily I, I'd still, I had a lot of support um, from my, my friends and family at the studio. There's a picture of me on social media somewhere uh, of me with like um, two gigantic drinks uh, at, at a local restaurant um, titled self care. Um, and uh, not my proudest moment. Um, it was funny, uh, you know, for, for what it was. Um, but it just, it was trauma. Um, and it, it, it lingers, right. Um, it, it lingers to this day, uh, cause I have, I have a unique experience. Um, not, not to just me, there are some other people at the studio that, um, that have it too, but, uh, not only was I laid off, but shortly after being laid off, I got the call and was asked to come back. Okay. Um, so reading that reached out to you. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, I didn't hesitate. Weeks. It was about three weeks, right? Is that about right? Yeah, I actually got the call. Um, I want to say a week after everything happened. Okay, so it was very quick. Huh. Um, uh, and in that week, uh, there there was a the studio did a lot to try and help people out. Um, I, okay. I really want to speak highly of the way that the studio handled things because mm-hmm. um, layoffs are never easy, and I don't yeah. blame anybody. I don't fault anybody. Um, you know, mistakes are made, uh, but it doesn't. Is that the crazy that thing about were. layoffs? I've been through a few myself, and it's always like this thing that affects everybody. No one really knows why, but there is a reason. I just think it's yeah. crazy that these that these kinds of things can happen. Like the human cost, and what is the reason, and why is that communicated? Man, it's I don't know how to wrap my mind around it. It's never made sense to me. Whenever I've been, I've been on, on both sides of it. It's weird. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm really sorry to hear that you've been through that. Uh, yeah, because it is not an experience that a few I think times, anybody. I'm should sad to say, working in tech, you know. Uh, that's. I'm sorry. That is. It is uh, un- the unfortunate state of the industry. You use the right word, trauma, and you know, I, I still carry those experiences with me. I still sometimes like wake up and be and and like in, in a moment of like a weird place. I am in a dream. I feel like I'm waking up the day after I got I got laid off again. Like that feeling. Uh, yeah. And, and it builds, it, it builds a fear of, of misstepping, right? Yeah. Um, you're, you're a little bit more careful about what you do. Um, you're a little bit more careful about what you say. Um, and uh, it, it shatters confidence, um, like- which is incredibly important for, for someone uh, in any creative field um, and any field whatsoever to have confidence in themselves um, and to have confidence in their abilities, confidence in their employer. um, Just all of that just gets broken. The trust. uh, Because, because the trust that a particular reality exists is broken. Yeah. Because another one actually takes its place. Right. Um, And so, so yeah, uh, a week after, uh, a week after they, uh, I got a call back. Um, I didn't hesitate. I said yes because um, I understood. Um, and again, I didn't take offense. Um, I was I was bitter. Um, I was yeah. upset. I was feeling a lot of emotions. But I tried my hardest to separate the uh, the act, the the event mm-hmm. from the people. Right. Um, and uh, and I told them, you know, I will come back. I need two weeks to just heal. Uh, and that's not enough time to heal fully, but it's at least going to give me time to self-care and, 
and to focus on rebuilding myself so that I can walk back into that studio and I can go through those doors and not immediately break down. And I almost did. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, um, it's there are so many effects from a studio layoff that I could talk about. Um, I don't want to get into too much of the details, sure. uh, but sure. but suffice to say that like um, you know, ArenaNet is a is a studio that is a family, um, and I know a lot of studios uh, will say that and tout that as you know their, their culture, their family, but. Um, it is really true for ArenaNet. We are really a family, um, and and that kind of that added to the uh, the severity of the trauma um, mm-hmm. because it, it felt like being abandoned by mm-hmm. your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it felt like being left behind. Um, and coming back, you know, it it was bittersweet because uh, I wasn't I wasn't the only one to come back, but I also was one of the few. Yeah. Um, and so coming into the halls and, and seeing empty spaces where people were before, um, knowing yeah. that I wasn't going to be able to work with some of my favorite people again, um, at least not for the foreseeable future, um, yeah. it was tough. Uh, I imagine and, the mood was pretty rough around the studio for a while after that. Oh, absolutely. Um, we, we lost a lot. Uh, not yeah. just in terms of you know raw numbers, um, but but everybody lost uh, the feeling of safety, uh-huh. right? Because um, if it happens once, it can happen again. Yeah. Right. And despite you know being reassured, uh, you know, hey, we're going to work to make sure this never happens again. Mm-hmm. And to the the studio's credit, um, they did make that very clear mm-hmm. uh it still is hard to trust that mm-hmm. when it has happened in the first place mm-hmm. you know um i likened it to getting back together with an ex mm-hmm. um there are reasons why you split in the first place and uh those reasons still exist mm-hmm. and coming back together uh, and trying again um, means that you you both have a level of trust uh, that you know previous mistakes won't happen, um, but also there's a there's a, a feeling of being guarded, um, a feeling of of not uh, not as easily investing right um, into things. Uh, yeah. and so like you're slower to get excited. You're you're slower to. Um kind of rally around a cause because right. this exactly. foundation feels like you can't move easily. You can't move confidently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, picture, uh, bro. Jeez. It's tough, but uh, that was two years ago at this point, and there have been plenty of other traumatic experiences. So uh, honestly, as crappy as it sounds, uh, is an opportunity to grow, right? Yeah. Um, Another damned growth opportunity what they say yep so let's, but, talk, so let's talk about them <laughs> so you come back to the studio you're feeling different the studio's feeling different um what do you jump into work on next um well uh part of it was um figuring out what we were going to do right um, yeah. we had a plan we had a direction 
Um, but you know, with the layoffs, uh, it threw a wrench into things. Um, and so, uh, the first thing that I, uh, jumped onto was helping to finish episode six for, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, I helped out with little tasks here and there. Um, I helped build the, um, the sky scale collection, um, Mm. and the, the flight paths that you have to go through to collect the magic as you go through. That was a lot of fun to go out into the world and create little paths. Um, uh, I helped to kind of shore up some of the open world, uh, steps, um, a little bit of help on creatures, uh, a little bit of help on, on the final instance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I was basically just a designer at large at that point, not in title or anything, but that was what I was doing. Yeah. You weren't Um, owning anything. You were just pitching them where you could. Right. Exactly. Um, just, just helping get things across the finish line. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then we shipped that, um, which felt good to finally ship something, uh, you know, after coming back, um, which wasn't actually all that long after shipping um, All or Nothing, uh, but it felt like a lifetime. Uh, and then after that uh, was, um, was Icebreed Saga. Yeah. Uh, I jumped onto the Episode 2 team uh, for uh, Shadows in the Ice. Right. Um, and I worked mostly on Drakkar. Uh-huh. Um, helped out with some, you know, knickknacks here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, world mostly boss focused hype? on, yeah, yeah. Mostly focused on building that world boss, um, yeah. which was fun. That was my first time building a world boss. How do you build a world boss, Cameron? Uh, <laughs> with a lot of patience and, uh, a lot of iteration. Um, I took a lot of the lessons that I learned, uh, from, the all or North, the, the, the all or nothing uh, episode um, and the instance uh, with Krokatoric, because mm-hmm. uh, Krokatoric uh, essentially some some back end knowledge. Um, uh, there are there are two ways to kind of animate a, a being um, and to create a, a being in Guild Wars Two, um, mm-hmm. and uh, one is uh, you know as a creature um, which has a hitbox and it moves around, and then one is a prop boss. Um, okay. Which is uh, without getting too much into the the details, uh, it is a um, a very complex uh, animated set piece, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't have the the same kind of uh, mobility as a creature. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't do a lot of the same things. The system for how it works and animates and uses skills is entirely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the prop bosses, you know, are, are the things that you know out in the world with targeting reticles um, that are the big dragons that you fight um, yeah, or the big yeah. golems and stuff like that. The, the um, quaddles, the shatterers of the world. Exactly. Um, and so with Drakkar, uh, one of the first things that uh, I set out to do with uh, the design for that old boss was um, I don't like that uh, all of our world bosses feel very stationary. Um, mm. And one of the most uh, fun experiences that I had as a player of Guild Wars 2 um, was my first time fighting the, uh, the Clob Jormag uh, up in Frostburge Sound uh-huh. um, and fighting it in one place, having it circle around, shooting its wings off and seeing it slam into the mountain, That's fall down, cool claws piece. way back up. Right? It's, yeah. it's badass. 
Yeah. It is, it is, it is an awesome fantasy. Um, and so I looked at that and I was like, all right, um, I want to do a world boss that feels like it moves around, that gets players to move around. Um, and uh, it was between tackling that challenge and tackling the challenge of um, why do world bosses feel like you're fighting their toenails all the time? <laughs> yeah, right. Boy, what do you do about that? That sounds like a hard one. That that just takes um, some some different planning uh, of the flow of the fight, um, incorporating more moments where, like, uh, you know, you put the creature into a pose where its mouth is on the ground and it's a gape, and you can attack its teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mm-hmm. it's just thinking more a little bit about um, kind of like the God of War boss experience of mm-hmm. uh, of beating something into submission and then yeah. taking its health down. Um, so you, you have a little and, bit of dynamism uh, in terms of which part of the boss you're engaged with, the position it's in, make it feel like right. when you're hitting the toenails, it's because like that's a moment in the fight instead of like the boss is the toenail. Exactly. It's not the primary way that you're doing damage. It's a yeah. means to an end, and the end is getting that burst window in. Sure, right? sure, sure. Um, and so, uh, so I I focused on um, making a prop boss that uh, was mobile. Um, and the way that I achieved that was smoke and mirrors because Drakkar is not actually one prop boss. It's seven. Uh, it's Ooh. actually more than seven. Um, oh, God. It's somewhere around the range of like, let's see, 17. What? Um, because all of the ones that come up from the ground and snap uh-huh. and then go back or come from the walls and snap, all of those are separate prop bosses. Of course. Um, yeah, because uh, uh, that was the way that I knew how to build Um, and, uh, if I knew the tools that we had today, I'd build it a little bit differently, but, Mm. uh, seven prop bosses and, uh, and I think it worked out pretty well. Um, is it the best world boss in the game? I don't think so. Uh, it was my first time building one. Uh, I'm proud of it. I think it's cool. Um, I think it's a fun fight. It has a neat scale to it. It feels different than the other boss fights in the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's got some cool little narrative pacing to it, fighting alongside Javi mm-hmm. and, and kind of uh, yeah. the moment where she like puts up the shield and it's like sitting there and blah, 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 trying to get into the <laughs> shield. That was cool. I like that too. Um, I also like the the effect of the shadow behind the ice. Like that's yeah, that's the, the VFX that that, that that those guys pulled off. Yeah, working with uh, working with Lee Bledsoe on that um, and uh, the rest of the the effects team on figuring out how we were going to do that. That was a fun pitch meeting because uh, I, I basically went in and I was like, all right, so you know that shot in the new Godzilla movie where you see uh, the giant, you know, multi-headed Hydra dragon behind mm-hmm. the ice? Mm-hmm. What if that was our boss fight? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, again, that was one of those moments where everybody was just like, <laughs> <laughs> you want to do what? <laughs> okay. Uh, but uh, we, we pulled it together and we came up with some really clever solutions uh, and we did, we did some awesome stuff. Um, to, to be honest, um, I, I think I was still recovering a little bit, uh, from the, the trauma of the, of the layoffs during Shadow in the Ice. Mm. Um, and so, uh, uh, I think unfortunately, um, I, I kind of kept myself from being as invested, uh, in that content, uh, as I normally would, uh, for content that I build, um, subconsciously. Uh, and consciously as well. Like you were um, still submerged beneath the ice a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, mm. uh, trying to trying to get my way out. See, you can you can find the correlations. Uh, we try. There. We try. 
but it was still a really fun release, uh, and it was fun to to do something that was a little bit different. That also allowed me to you know stretch the the boss design skills mm-hmm. um, that I had. Uh, and uh, one of my favorite little additions that we did post launch was um, the failure state. Uh, where if uh, if it times out, everybody in the arena gets uh, team switched, uh, and you all uh, get taken over by Jormag's uh, influence, and you uh, have open world PvP. Uh, finally, that was, that was something Connor Fallon and I riffed off of uh, whenever we were doing that, and it was it's it's a cool addition. I like it's, neat, it. it's a neat little bit of catharsis. If if you stuck around for the entire timer and still didn't kill that thing, then yeah, I mean, it's your fault. You weren't doing enough DPS kill yeah and you can't kill the other players right like that was something that was really important is we don't want you to die to other players but you can get them to go down and then they team switch back to a friendly team so okay um got the best of both worlds sure yeah 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 okay so Drakkar, some new stuff new challenges still not still not feeling it like you were do you feel like since then you've you've worked back to a spot where you're committing like the way you used to or is this just something that's always going to be different from now on uh no i think i think i have um with a caveat uh i i think i've gotten to a different place okay um because uh i am not the the wide-eyed hopeful uh super um not not necessarily naive, but you know, for lack of a better term, naive. You know, twenty. How old was I whenever I first started? Uh, I was twenty one when I first started at ArenaNet proper. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not that person anymore, right? Uh, and so the way that I approach things is a little bit different. Um, but uh, you know, starting starting with um, with the mountain fractal, um, and then you know the work that I'm doing on End of Dragons. Uh, Mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. uh, I am back to a a new place uh, that I feel like uh, I feel like I'm actually more invested um, than How I would you was describe before. that place? What's that like? Um, thinking so, my role has shifted um, over the years, uh, mm-hmm. and so um, right now uh, I'm fulfilling the role of uh, encounters team lead, okay. uh, and so. Um, that team uh, is uh, responsible for the boss fights in the game, uh, fractals, raid strikes, um, and uh, so we have we have a lot of responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, as as a team lead, uh, which is something that um, is fairly new to me, but uh, you know, something that I've always wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to think a little bit more holistically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to think a little bit more about uh, the uh, the team as a whole, uh, the individual members on the team, um, and the product as a whole. Um, mm-hmm. And not necessarily uh, what I want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or or the projects that that I want to, to pitch. Because um, there are mm-hmm. a lot of those. Uh, but instead, um, you know, my investment is now in um, growing uh, the talent um, that we need uh, on the team to yeah. to ensure that everybody involved is is confident in their own uh, abilities as designers. Um, mm-hmm. It's mentoring. It's uh, 
it's reviewing and giving feedback. Um, and it's, uh, it's building up our pedigree. Uh, right. Okay. Um, and so, so yeah, it's a, it's a little bit different, um, from when I was an individual contributor. Yeah. Um, going from getting your own wins to helping others win. Right. Exactly. Um, and I still have, you know, little passion projects here and there that I'll work on, uh, that I'll do. Um, but, uh, by and large, uh, most of my time now is spent on helping other people achieve their goals, uh, sure. and giving, giving them the tools to, um, to reach their wildest dreams. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something that I've always wanted to do. Okay. Um, and so being given the opportunity to do that, uh, has, reinvigorated um me and, mm. and my confidence mm -hmm. uh and and drive that's fantastic that's fantastic uh yeah it sounds like a a bigger challenge than just trying to yeah. realize what you want in the game it's trying to realize what you what uh take what you've learned and help realize it in the people around you and help them realize their visions um that's beautiful man um thanks I am stopping myself from asking you to tell me about End of Dragons now. I, I won't. That is that is not my job. Just uh, just like what six more weeks till we get to find out. So, the recording date of this particular podcast is the seventeenth of June, and we've been promised more information on July twenty seventh. We're all waiting on pins and needles here, but uh, very excited about that. Um, do you so? I had a chance to watch your uh, the guild chats you did about uh, the mountain fractal about Sanqua Peak. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I feel like we've we've really told a good rounded story here, Cameron. But I do want to just say that I really appreciate um, one of the things I really appreciate about the 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 Sanqua Peak fractal are the efforts that went in again, like you were saying before, about really telling a story. And I, li I like how it rode it felt like it was closer to the central axis of that experience. The story of, um, Bo and Lan and I, and, um, the gravestones before the final encounter. And I love, love how the, the challenge mode for the Sanquapi fractal doesn't just raise the stakes mechanically, but it raises the stakes narratively too. I think that's a really great and beautiful thing. I'm really glad to hear you say that. Uh, that was a very personal passion project uh, of mine. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what made it personal? So my my friends know this, uh, and um, I've said it on Twitter uh, a couple of times. Um, but uh, Sunqua Peak started development. Uh, earlier uh, than the pandemic started, mm -hmm. um, at least from, you know, an ideation phase. Mm -hmm. And uh, from the very beginning, we knew that we wanted to tell an emotional story. And uh, I have always wanted to tell uh, the story of a mother uh, who has lost the most important uh, person to them, uh, their child. Um, mm -hmm. It's something that I've wanted to tell in uh, side projects outside of ArenaNet that I used to do whenever, uh, before I was a designer. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, uh, and I was given a unique opportunity to uh, pursue that story uh, with the Sanqua Fractal. Okay. And in uh, late March, uh, after the pandemic had really kicked into high gear mm-hmm. and quarantine was in place, uh, I ended up losing my mother. Oh, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks. That's, uh, that's rough. That's tough. It is. Um, it oh, continues shit. to be. Of course. Um, it's, it felt a little bit like fate um, that I had just started a project that was uh, intimately connected with the concept of grief at its core uh, to then experience um, nearly the exact form of grief. Um, the inverse, but nearly the exact. Um, wow. And uh, with lockdown and uh, with uh, the prevalence of the coronavirus, um, I wasn't able to you know, fall back on the same support systems uh, that I usually would. Um, for multiple reasons, I wasn't able to go back home uh, yeah. to do like a memorial service. Um, I don't have any family that's up here in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you just had to deal with it alone in your place. Yeah. Uh, luckily at, at the time I was living, sorry, luckily no, at no, the time please. I was living with some friends. Okay. Well, that's something um, who, who, you know, helped me get through it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it was taxing. Um, incredibly taxing emotionally and it, it hit every day uh and for a while it um it was something that i just tried to push out of my mind and focus on what i was doing but due to the nature of the work <laughs> it's a constant reminder um and uh so sunqua peak became this uh really special intimate project uh where I was able to just try and sort through all of the emotions I had, uh, try and figure out uh, ways of expressing what I was feeling uh, through the content, through the gameplay. Um, uh, And so uh, the team that I had behind me um, was incredibly supportive. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the narrative team, and the writer by my side uh, both helped me to uh, realize the story of that family. Um, and then uh, something that they did uh, that I'm incredibly appreciative of is uh, they allowed me to uh, put a poem that I wrote for my mother into the game uh, as kind of a way for me to use the tools that I had available to find some closure, right? Um, and, uh, and it's also where the, the challenge mode you mentioned, you know, it it raises the narrative stakes, um, for those who haven't played the challenge mode, uh, of Sunqua Peak, when you're done with the fight, uh, you're not actually done with the fight. Um, in the normal mode, if it felt like the story hadn't ended, um, it's because it didn't, uh, Mm -hmm. you, you can't just like tell someone to get better. Um, you can't 
just say, you know, uh, you can't say magical words that are going to make someone feel like they have processed through things. Uh, it is yeah. something that has to come from within. Um, and you can help them along. Uh, and that was the whole point of the, the fight against I. Um, and then in challenge mode, uh, we, we leaned into that even further um, and have you fight her doubt uh, mm-hmm. and her grief, uh, or sorry, her guilt um, and her fear and her sorrow, all manifesting as different spirits uh, that uh, were taking corporeal form. Um, and that idea, uh, that was also part of the original design. Um, mm-hmm. That was part of, of what we pitched uh, before everything happened. Um, and, uh, and so again, like it was one of those moments that felt so faded, um, with everything that had been going on. Right. That is Um, surreal. Cause you know, uh, if, if we had, you know, been building that and, uh, the only trauma that we had to deal with was uh, lockdown and pandemic and not being able to see our friends, that's still a really powerful emotional motivator to be able yeah. to pull on, to continue to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Um, if we had done that and I had lost my mother, but there was no pandemic, um, then, uh, that's still, you know, really powerful emotional motivator. Um, but the core of the story is, uh, trying to deal with grief alone. And it just so happened that life decided to throw the most perfect curveball of here. You want to know what it's like to deal with grief alone? Deal with grief alone. Uh, and I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was, it was one of the most difficult years. Uh, I think it is the most difficult year of my life. Save one, maybe. Um, and uh I don't know how I would have gotten through it if I didn't have uh, Sanqua Peak to fall back on. Um, there's also a reason why uh, that fractal um, focuses more on the final boss, focuses more on the eye uh, mm-hmm. and the story that it tells and doesn't focus as much on the, the elementals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's because we intentionally wanted to put as much effort as possible into that. Um, so yeah, uh, I, uh, I hope that that gives, um, a little bit of, uh, extra perspective, maybe next time that you're going through that fractal, uh, or reading through the, the notes that you find, um, reading the, uh, the inscriptions on some of the, the tombstones in there. Um, it came from a very personal place and, and not just from me, but from other members of the team too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I will never be able to experience that in the same way. Um, thank you for sharing that. And I wish I can give you a big old hug right now. I appreciate it. Um, um, it's, it's hard to talk about. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course. But, uh, like, like I said about you know, needing to be more comfortable with uh, giving positive feedback to people, uh, mm. it's not healthy to, to bottle things up and to not talk about uh, grief because it's a universal human experience. Um, yeah. And so thank you for giving me the opportunity to share that story. Definitely. Definitely. Whew. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's take a second. Have a sip of water. <laughs> Indeed.
I have my big old gallon water bottle that I try to pace Good myself and make sure I get a gallon every day. Good for you, man. Drink more water. H2O gang. I'm absolutely 100% going to be a show for water on stream right now. Have you drank <laughs> water today? No? Go get yourself some water. Stay hydrated every day. It's the most important thing. A lot of your body is made up of water. I can't remember the exact percent. Go do like it. 70-ish percent. My dad is a science teacher, and I don't remember the exact percent of our body is made up of water. How shameful. How shameful. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, man. Uh, so you must feel pretty good then that things are starting to lighten up in terms of the pandemic and the lockdown. Are things going to... I mean, End of Dragons is coming out, so you probably still for to a large extent stuck indoors uh but um it's a moment like this where i feel most like being a screen away from someone is just the worst um yeah i literally there are no words and if we weren't here on stream the thing i'd like to do is just to sit by you and just be a human and not ask you to talk not ask you to share anything else because that is some real shit. And you channeled it into something creative that we all get to see. And that's a beautiful thing. And that's a hard thing. And it's something I I don't know what I would do if I were in that situation. I'm sure it took a lot of strength and a lot of support. So also shout out to the folks who were there with you, making that alongside, alongside you and everyone out there who's hearing this. Um, Cam, I think this is probably... You know, I promised you when we started this that we wouldn't get to everything, and I think I was right. I think that this might be a good moment, a good moment for us to put a pin in this. What do you think? Sure. Yeah? I, I, I'm happy to continue talking if you are, but I also agree that this, this might be a good, a good moment. Maybe a part two. Hey, I'm up for that. One of the major things we didn't get to, which I, I'm very keen on discussing, is our mutual affliction known as ADHD and yes. <laughs> uh, all the intricacies of that. But that's it. That deserves its own conversation and plenty of space. This conversation, you sharing your story about knowing what you wanted, finding a way to get it, making your own luck, stacking the deck and your path from being someone who got your wins to being someone who was starting to help other get others get their wins. That is a very, a very lovely story. And a great example to us all. And I just want to thank you for sitting down and sharing it with me. Of course. And thank you for the opportunity. I really, really do appreciate it. Is there anything that you want to promote or share other than, you know, End of Dragons? Um, you know, I, I think the most important thing uh, on my mind right now, uh, coming off of what we just talked about, is um, I had mentioned that uh, grief uh, and, and the feeling of dealing with loss is uh, a universal human experience. Yeah. Um, and uh, over the course of the last year, uh, I know I'm not the only one who has experienced similar circumstances. Um, and so uh, to anybody who is watching, um, who is currently struggling uh, in any way with something similar, um, you're not alone. Uh, and I, 
encourage you to reach out to your friends uh, and your family and talk to them. Um, and if you don't have friends and family that you can trust um, and you feel comfortable, you can reach out to me. Uh, I would rather lend an ear and uh, be a, a person to, to bounce ideas off of and just to hash things out with um, than know that someone is going through bullshit and suffering alone. Um, in times like these, it's more important than ever uh, that we are together and are there for each other as a community. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why I love MMOs, uh, why I love Kill Wars 2, and uh, why I love the community that we have uh, is because of how supportive we are um, and how much like a family we are. Yeah. So if you're struggling, um, you're not alone and you don't have to be. That's right. You're not alone. I have my name to that pile too. If I'm closer to you, you can find my name, find Cameron's name. Hit us up. Don't be alone because you're not. Okay. This was a great talk. Yeah, man. It really was. Thank you again to everyone listening, whether it's live or after the fact. Thank you. If you're alone, find a friend. Find one of us. That's it. Thanks, y'all. Take care. Talk to you soon.